What do you think? Nobody knows. Welcome, everyone, to episode 11 of Some Luck It's Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and here with me today, in slight role reversal as I'm now the one in the southeast, while he finds himself somewhere more north, my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? You're checking out a new city for the summer, I think. Yes, uh, I am here on site in Washington, D.C., uh, here to see if I can fix our government in uh, a matter of two months. But, uh, that, that's doable, right? That, that's happened before. Right? People people solving all of government yeah, problems yeah, in two at months. The, at the very least, I'm going to try and keep it from shutting down, which, you know, has happened already, like, multiple times. Uh, it, it, you know, it seems like it's happened, like, five or six times the past uh, few years. I mean, even before Trump was president. But, like, I, I always wonder what exactly does it mean when it shuts down? Like, do they just power down the White House? And, you, you know, like, what, is, what does it look like? When they saw Some Look at Sky and a big movie real logo on the top, they were like, yeah, I'm coming for a political discussion. So we, we give the people what they want. All right, well, we have a lot to talk about today between Solo and Deadpool 2, so why don't we go ahead and kick things off with the second installment in the Star Wars anthology series, and that is, as I've already mentioned, Solo, A Star Wars Story. Scott, this was a movie that experienced some turmoil during its development process with the original directors Phil Lord and Christopher Miller separating themselves slash being fired, depending on who you believe, about midway through filming, not even pre-production, but filming, uh, due to creative differences with Lawrence Kasdan, Kathleen Kennedy, and the greater Star Wars production hierarchy. Ron Howard was hired to step in and get the movie over the line, and he did just that, delivering the movie on time, which I'm sure everyone over at uh, Disney and, and Star Wars were pretty pleased about, um, as it was a more aggressive release date, trying to hit a summer box office release, as opposed to the past few years we've been getting Christmas time holiday releases. And as already mentioned, Solo is a Star Wars anthology film centered around the origins of the infamous character Han Solo, played in this version by Alden Ehrenreich, uh, of course taking the place of the equally infamous Harrison Ford, as Han escapes from the clutches of a local criminal gang to which he and his lover Kira, played by Daenerys Stormborn herself, Amelia Clark, were beholden uh, in Han's very early years. Han succeeds in escaping, but Kira, unfortunately, is recaptured, and the rest of the movie takes place three years after the opening scene and follows Han as he tries to find Kira and set her free uh, from, and, and basically just be reunited with her. Uh, it features a supporting cast of Woody Harrelson playing Tobias Beckett, a criminal who becomes Han's mentor, Donald Glover, who plays Lando Calrissian, the infamous underworld smuggler from the original Star Wars trilogy, as hopefully some of our listeners are familiar, and Paul Bettany as the ruthless crime lord Dryden Voss. And there, there are a host of other characters and, and, and cameos in this film that we could mention here, but probably best just to stop there. And Scott, as a huge Star Wars fan yourself, possibly even more so than I am, I'm not sure, uh, to get our discussion started, why don't I kick things over to you for you to talk about your high-level impressions of this film? As I think we both agree, this is maybe quite different from either of the two or three most recent films we've gotten out of the Star Wars universe. 
Yeah, uh, so like you said, like I am a huge Star Wars fan. Both of us are. You know, I don't know who is who is more of a Star Wars fan. I can tell you though that I, when I was younger, I was probably I probably knew more about Star Wars than I do now. Like I, I don't know why that knowledge has gone out of my head. It's probably been replaced by a lot more important knowledge. But um, one L, one L year. Yeah, I feel like everything has gone out of my head except for that stuff now. But um, but so. You know, I'm excited for any Star Wars movie, even though, you know, this, I mean, we all know that this franchise has certainly had its low points, um, looking at you, Attack of the Clones. Um, but even even in the, you know, the worst movies, even in Attack of the Clones, for example, uh, you still have great moments like that I think are essential to the Star Wars, uh, to, to, to the Star Wars canon. Um, so, you know, any movie that is going to provide that moment those moments are is going to get me excited um but at the same time the trailers for this movie um or at least the first trailer which i think came out during the super bowl right um i think it came out the day after the super bowl that they had a teaser during the super bowl tv spot yeah um but it, it didn't look very encouraging and you know the expedited release date as you pointed out you know, and, and as well as the you know the the controversy behind it with Phil Lord and Christopher Miller being dropped, um, you know, perhaps lowered my expectations a little bit going into this movie. Um, but I, you know, I was still I still had high expectations because the recent Star Wars movies have been so strong, and in my opinion, some of the best entries in the series. Yeah. Um, and so on that note, I, I mean, I think that this movie is. I mean, it's pretty clearly the weakest of the four modern Star Wars movies, so to speak, with, you know, The Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and Rogue One. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I mean to, that, to be fair, some people might disagree with you with Episode Eight, but I know that yeah, you and I both really liked Episode Eight. so... Yeah, I wish that we had, we could have had this podcast when that movie came out, because I think we, had a, we, we could have had a very uh, interesting discussion about that movie, because there are a lot of people who feel differently to me, but I think it's one of the top three movies in the in the franchise but um but solo i feel like is the weakest of uh these four movies i don't think that that's uh, too much of a stretch and i think that that's pretty much been the critical response to it so far mm-hmm. um but i you know like i said i still think there are a lot of things to like here um i think that it has some great moments like i think it's great as a star wars fan you know to finally see some of these things which have been such a part of the star wars lore from the very beginning um but like you know, or just or just talked about in other movies, like you know, for example, Han and Chewie meeting. Like we get to see that you know the the birth of this relationship that you know we we we've already watched progress over like the original trilogy and beyond. Um, and and so you know, seeing that is being able to see how they met. You know, their relationship formed is great. Being able to see Han make the Kessel Run and twelve parsecs. You know, that's if one you of the round most down. Famous- if you round down, <laughs> yeah. If, if you round down, I, I did. I did think that was funny, uh, especially because in the Force Awakens, we know that Ray mistakenly says uh, that he did it in fourteen parsecs, and he, you know, corrects her in twelve. But maybe, maybe what we have learned from all this is that thirteen might actually be the most accurate number. <laughs> um, maybe that's the one that they should put in the books. But uh, so seeing things like that, uh, you know, is cool. Like it, there, there's no doubting that. Um, 
because you know these these things have been such a huge part of the Star Wars legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know those little moments, and also you know a lot of the characters. I mean, I think that we'll get into his performance a little bit more, but I think that Alden Ehrenreich does a fantastic job as Han Solo, and I think that Donald Glover is really great as uh, Lando Calrissian as well. Um, so you know these little things make this movie an enjoyable experience. Like I, I it is. I, I certainly recommend that Star Wars fans, even casual Star Wars fans, go see it uh, because I think that, again, it's a movie which adds a lot of important things to the Star Wars canon. But I don't think as a movie um, that it works well as a lot of the other movies in this series. Um, I think that the story is not particularly engaging. Um, it's really not that hard. or it, It's really uh, a little difficult to follow in places. Yep. And because it wasn't that engaging, because I wasn't that interested in what was going on, like I didn't really commit the energy to trying to understand what was going on. Um, so in the end, when there's a lot of backstabbings and betrayals going on, um, you know, I, I was kind of like, oh, you know, that was surprising. Didn't see that coming. But it wasn't. It didn't have like the, I don't know, the emotional p- p- impact that. I mean, for example, stuff in the Last Jedi had, and I mean, sure. or even look things. at Rogue One, maybe even, even Rogue yeah, One. Yeah, sure. yeah, sure. Like the, I think Rogue One is a great example because, you know, anyone who under, knows what what uh, knows the Star Wars franchise, like knows what is going to happen at the end of Rogue One, uh, and yet it's still a gripping movie from beginning to end. Absolutely. Um, but uh, this movie, I, I, again, I, you know, the story was probably the weakest part for me. Um, so, I, and, I, and I wasn't really invested enough to try and try and work through it. Um, yeah, you know, and, and another thing that that stuck out to me, I don't know if this was just the theater that I was in, or if you noticed this as well, um, but the visually, this movie looks really dark. Yep. Um, and again, I don't know if this was something about the theater that I was in, but. A lot in a lot of scenes, it was like really hard to see the actors' faces, um, and it, it just seemed like it, it was there was this kind of muddy filter over the whole movie or over hmm. a lot of the scenes. Um, so that definitely took away from the experience a lot because you know one of the great things about the Star Wars franchise is like enjoying the visuals and being swept away and in, into this universe. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, you know, I feel like I, I would have. I, I feel like the dismissal of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller might have harm to this movie in the end i mean which is not to say that ron howard doesn't know what he's doing he's obviously a very competent filmmaker and this is a very competently made film but um i think that phil lord and christopher miller like i mean if you look at their credits so far they everything they've done has been a home run from the jump street franchise to the lego movie i mean they found ways to uh, put a spark in Thing. I mean, who would have thought that a movie about the Lego universe would be so great? And who would have thought that bringing back the 21 Jump Street TV show, uh, you know, would have resulted in not one, but two, like, fantastic comedies? Um, so I, I think that they were great names, like, to be able to breathe something new into this story. Um, but in the end, I think what we get is kind of a workmanlike uh film and i understand why they pushed it to a summer release date not only because it's not as good as some of the other movies because but because it just doesn't feel as substantial as some of those uh, like you know after the last jedi or the force awakens i just walked out and i felt like you know 
emotionally exhausted and mm-hmm. you know you don't get that at all with this movie no but there is still a lot to like yeah i i agree i think that there is a lot to like with this film i think if you go if you go into the theater expecting something like particularly i'm thinking particularly rogue one or episode eight but i think this also applies to episode seven um then you're gonna be disappointed when you walk out of the theater because you're not gonna get that and i don't think there's i mean personally i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think this movie definitely belongs in the summer release window it's a fun it's a fun movie it's a fun movie i had a really good time watching it is it a great movie definitely not in my opinion uh what you said about the plot which we'll get to a little bit later definitely resonates with me i think i kind of have described it as it's a complicated knot of plot twists and betrayals that it maybe you could argue untangles itself from but it doesn't do it very well if it does at all um and that's and that's fine like i didn't I didn't walk. I didn't go into the theater being like, "All right, this needs to be like a really deep, meaningful plot." Um, I didn't think that it would be. With, I mean, even from the very beginning, I don't think they were intending it to be. Between Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, as you mentioned, their directorial credits under their belt. Um, I think it's like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Twenty One Jump Street, Twenty Two Jump Street, and the Lego Movie. Like, you're not going to get a deep plot like anything that Ryan Johnson could. Like, regardless of what you think of Episode Eight, you're not going to get the depth of plot that you would get from a Ryan Johnson or even a J.J. Abrams. And that's fine. Like, I think that the the problem is, is this movie got confused, and this is where maybe there's a more substantive criticism with what it was trying to accomplish. Um, it got confused, and this is why I think this is because of the... You can see this in the directorial problems that this film had, that, you know, maybe this film wanted to start off as a comedy, but it, at the end of the day, it wasn't a comedy. Like, you don't hire Phil Lord and Christopher Miller if you want, you know, a Mission Impossible-like action flick which i think ultimately is what this tries to be yeah and, and i think that the, okay. the, the lack of comedy in general is noticeable in this movie like you know i think that, that it has sort of a you know you say it's a fun movie i think that's that's accurate i think it has this you know adventurous spirit that we see in all the star wars movies yep. but I, I did feel that it was missing a lot of humor the only character who really sort of provides that is the the donald glover character lando calrissian because yep. He's so self-absorbed, and so they get, you know, they poke a few laughs out of that. But mm-hmm. I, I felt like this movie could have done a lot more in the humor department. Just, I mean, even, you know, even the J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson entries, like, had their moments of humor. Sure. And I think that, I mean, Ron, I think, again, this is not a hit on Ron Howard, but, like, Ron Howard, Howard is not going to deliver you a comedy, which is probably why he was added to the cat. Like, that's why he was chosen to finish this film. And that's fine, but I just think that this movie was so. It, it, I guess it, in some ways it was delivered in 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 piecemeal parts, in that like all of the pre-production happened with Christopher Miller and Phil Lord, and half of the filming happened with them. Half of the filming happened with Ron Howard. Ron Howard cut the film, and then you know obviously finished finished the production process, post-production process. And I think you can see there are moments in the film that are you know the i'm thinking particularly the action sequences and you know the the fan servicey kind of oh this is where that came from or you know you mentioned the doing the kessel run is a prime example of that you know those those scenes are so enjoyable and really fun to watch and then there are some moments that you might call for this film have become more you know peripheral that are just like well i don't really know why this character is there i don't love this character i'm thinking of like is it I don't remember the name of the droid, Lando's droid, like L three, L three, like that's not a character who was very good in this movie. No, and they were clearly trying to go for like a 
BB-8 K2SO type charm with that character, and it for me it completely bombed. Like I couldn't have cared less about that character. Sure, and I, and my point here is that I imagine that that was that that might have been a you know, brainchild of Christopher, sorry Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, and yeah. I think that when they left the project the delivery of that character as an example for maybe the wider movie of moments that might get lost or the comedic moments that might get lost um that character kind of fell by the wayside because like ron howard probably gets to them like all right what is this like woke droid doing i don't know what to yeah. do with i don't know what to do with this droid I um, think what we what we what we learned is that liam neeson definitely should have voiced the droid because when liam neeson uh, voice good cop bad cop in the Lego movie. Uh, he brought out it brought out these comedic chops. We had no idea that he had. So maybe if Phil Lord and Christopher Miller had stayed on, we would have gotten Liam Neeson doing this role. Would have been much better. But. Maybe. Uh, but but to, why don't we turn to some more positive notes and talk about? Well, why don't we talk about Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover? The the two, uh, in my opinion, you know, standout members of this cast in terms sure. of what they accomplish, and and they also happen to be playing characters who. Star Wars fans will already be familiar with as they play Han Solo and uh, Lando Calrissian, who both appear in the original trilogy, and then also Han does make an appearance in Episode Seven, of course. Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, both of them do great jobs, and I think that the roles are a little bit different because you know you talk about how um, we Star Wars fans will know both of these characters, and that is true, but they obviously know Han Solo a lot better than Definitely. they know Lando Calrissian. So, I mean, I think Donald Glover has a little bit more of a free reign with his performance because you know, the first time we see Lando is in The Empire Strikes Back, and, you know, he's just this guy who shows up and he clearly knows Han, but we don't get a great sense of who he is, really, or what their relationship was like in the past. Um, we just know, oh, here's Han's buddy. Um, and he's kind of a, you know, roguish type guy, just like Han. Um, so I think Donald Glover gets some free reign a little bit with his character and i think i really enjoyed the direction that he took the character in uh, kind of what i was hinting at earlier he, he makes him this sort of like self-absorbed like he's you know he's he's doing his diaries to himself on the millennium falcon while the other guys are out there fighting the battle um and he, you know he, he thinks a lot more of himself than maybe other people think of him and i i think it was it was funny to have donald glover playing that role because here you have Donald Glover, a guy in real life who pretty much does everything and does everything extremely well. Um, so he's kind of like the, the inverse of this character a little bit because, um, maybe, you know, like I said, Lando thinks a lot of himself when he doesn't really do anything. Whereas Donald Glover, you know, people seem to love him for, because he does everything really well. Uh, so I think that that was kind of an inspired bit of casting there. Um, and as for Alden Ehrenreich, like I didn't know what to expect from his performance going in. Uh, Especially because there were, there were, there was also reports. And I think, I mean, I think they're true is that he was, he had an acting coach on set. Uh, which, which like really concerned a lot of people when that news came yeah. out. They're like, "Oh my god, he can't even act! Like, what is he doing?" But it, but it, I think it turns out that the acting coach was specifically to make sure that he was imitating Harrison Ford, uh, and and, and like basically well, gearing his acting around Harrison Ford's manner, Harrison Ford's mannerisms. That's interesting because I was just, I was actually just going to make the point that I think that what he does really well is that he doesn't try to impersonate Harrison Ford. Um, because, I mean, obviously everyone knows this character, you know, and knows Harrison Ford as this character from four movies in this franchise. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, I just don't think that it would have been the right approach to just try and do a copycat performance. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I don't I think, think he does a copycat performance. I, but, I, but, exactly. I do think, but I do think that he, he gets the, I don't know, the, the mannerisms and the way Harrison Ford yeah. carried himself. Like, you're not, I don't think he's mirroring Harrison Ford in any way. But, like, the way he, like, holds his blaster and, like, way he, like, carries himself... Uh, and almost like an arrogant towards the end of the movie, at least once he's like built up his his persona and confidence. I think you see an evolution where he's like, all right, like I can see more bits of Harrison Ford's persona or or mannerisms or however you want to describe it in the acting. And I thought it was a really nice touch. I don't think it's over the top. I don't think like I, like I didn't go into the I didn't like think during the movie. Oh my god, like he's just trying really hard to be Harrison Ford here and it's not working for me because I think he he does make Han Solo his own and he makes it his own in a way that I really love. Like, I think he does... I think he's phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, I, no, I agree and that was kind of the what I was building towards is the, I, I think that uh, even even though he doesn't imitate Han Solo, he captures... I mean, Im- imitate Harrison Ford, he captures the spirit of the character, spirit of what Harrison Ford brought to that character. Um but in, in doing so, he still leaves his own stamp on the role, which I think is really impressive yep. um, to do for a character that, you know, we've known for so long and we've known one actor playing him for so yeah. long. What, um, one thing that I thought, to, to add to this point because I think it's directly related, is one thing that I think is a lot different than Harrison Ford's, If I'm, I mean, it's actually been an embarrassingly long time since I've watched the original trilogy of movies, so totally totally jump in here and tell me I'm wrong. But I found Alden Ehrenreich, and, and I think some people have actually complained about this, this is like a negative thing for some people, uh, from some responses that I've, I've watched or read, is that I find him to be like a more optimistic and happy-go-lucky character in this movie, which I think makes a lot of sense, because he's a younger version, he's someone who, like, you can see where this character ends up, like, I don't know how many years it is, this is before episode four, but you can see how over time as this, you know, well, you could even say through the events of this movie by the end of it, but we'll, which we'll talk about later, like, how maybe when you get to Han Solo of the original trilogy, he's, like, a little bit more worn jaded. down, jaded, exactly, yeah. jaded, and you get this more boyish, you know, charisma's not the right word, because Harrison Ford has so much charisma in the role of of Han Solo, but this more kind of optimistic, charming in a smiley way from Alden Ehrenreich. And that's something that I really appreciate as being different from Han Solo because you have, like, he has no reason yet to be the jaded Han Solo of the original trilogy. And that's what I think Alden Ehrenreich does a really good job with. Yeah, and and I think that maybe one of the moments that didn't ring as true for me in his performance, it, because of what you're saying is, there's a part where he... Uh, is talking to Kira. Uh, it's towards the end of the movie, and she says, "Well, you know, everyone knows, you know, the thing that I've always known about you, which is that you're a good guy." And he's like, "No, I'm not a good guy. I'm I'm, I'm a bad guy." And I'm like, "No, you're a good guy. Come on." Um, yeah. And that I mean, That's so I, I I think that that, but I, but I like I you know at the same time I like that because I think it's building towards Han what, how Han develops as a character in the original trilogy because. Whether he admits it or not, I think he wants to be the good guy. And we get that great moment at the end of the movie. And I think it's maybe my favorite part of the movie um, when he's about to leave um, the 
beach. Is it Tatooine? No, it's not Tatooine, is it? What The planet that they're on at the end. Um, and the the girl, uh, Infis is her name, I believe. Infantness, yeah. Yeah, he's speaking to her, and, and she says, she basically invites him to join the rebellion. Um, and he says, no, I, I don't think so. And, uh, and she says, well, you know, you can always change your mind or something like that. And he's like, I don't, I don't think I'll be changing my mind. Or, it, and it, I, I wish I could remember the exact dialogue, but it, it was a great moment because it, you know, it really gave us that foreshadowing of, uh, you know, here he is saying he's going to change. He's, ne- you know, he's never going to change his mind. He's never going to join the rebellion. But we know that, you know, in in a new hope, he's going to fly the Millennium Falcon and destroy the Death Star. Um, yeah. So, so the- I, I thought that that was a really like great bit of foreshadowing for big Star Wars fans like myself. Yeah. No. So yeah, the planet Savarine, not Tatooine. They do talk about going to Tatooine at the end yeah. of the film. Um, at the very, very end of the of the movie. Yeah, that's hinting at meeting up with Jabba the Hutt. Yep, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. And I, I agree. That was actually, I mean, we're kind of jumping around here, but I think it's totally fine. But the but the line that you're talking about where he says, no, I'm I'm the bad guy, that was like the one, that was the, like, that was the biggest line mistake I think that the film has because it's like so no, not. No, that was one bigger one, but go ahead. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, yeah, but I, I just mean in terms of like sheer plot yeah. arc. I was just like, that's just like not what he should say in this situation, and it's not what I think that he would say either. So, I mean, I don't, I don't put that on Alden Aaron. I could put that on who I don't actually not sure who gets writing credits for this film. Um, Lawrence Kasdan and, and Jonathan Kasdan, probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Right. I'm surprised he hasn't done um, more than that. Anyway, um, right. So like there was there was that moment, and then I I agree that the the whole conversation with Infus Nest. Uh, is is another is another great moment. Yeah, and since you brought up the you know the line that falls the most flat, I think we have to talk about how Han Solo gets his name because that was for me the worst part of the movie. Um, oh really? I, I I didn't feel anything in that. I was just like, eh, whatever. That's yeah. A, that... that was the problem. Like I think that it, this should have been a you know some great moment where we find out you know there there's some really great uh, you know legacy behind how Han develops the name Solo. But no, what really happens is an Imperial officer asks him if he has any family, and he's like, no, I'm all by myself. And he's like, okay, you will be Han Solo. I, I, it, it just like, I feel like there was a really great opportunity there for, you know, uh, a nostalgic-type moment, um, and they just, it felt completely flat to me. Yeah, if, yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, like, maybe you were upset, but it didn't upset me. I was just like, ah, cool, okay, whatever. There there definitely could have been more it made of it. It didn't, like, well, like, I didn't go into the movie thinking, oh, we're going to find out how Han Solo got his name. I just assumed that that was his name. But when this moment happened, I was sitting there like, really? Like, really? That is how he got his name. Like, <laughs> that's what we're going with. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, again, we were, we should... Remind everyone that we are heaping praise on Donald Glover, Childish Gambino, and Alden Ehrenreich because their performances, I think, really carried this film um, through its weaker plot, maybe. But to move on to some other characters, there's three other main ones worth talking about. We can kind of lump them all together if you want. I don't know how much time you want to spend on each of them. But there's Amelia Clark who plays Kira, who is kind of Alden Ehrenreich's lover, uh, or love interest, maybe, is a better way to describe it, in this film. Uh, Woody Harrelson, who plays Tobias Beckett, who is a criminal kind of minions, maybe too too 
I don't know, weak of a word to describe him, but basically working for uh, Paul Bettany's Dryden Voss and um, was it Crimson Skies? What is it? Crimson Crimson Dawn. Crimson Dawn. That was close. Um, Crimson Dawn. It's not a very creative name. I don't blame you for not remembering it. Yeah, although, well, we can we can debate. Well, we'll save that <laughs> debate for a little bit later because I think that it's alluding to a big spoiler at the end. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so you know, you have Kira, you have Beckett, and you have Dryden Voss. Uh, what did you think of these of these kind of supporting cast of characters? And we also, of course, have Chewbacca. Although um, his, I think I can't remember his voice actor. This one is maybe uh, Junas Suatimo. I'm not sure. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that Paul Bettany is going to be living off the residuals he gets from this summer of movies for probably for the rest of his life. Because <laughs> between this movie and Infinity War, I mean, this dude is going to have gold bricks in his house. But um, yeah, I don't know how his contract I, is structured with these different franchises, but he's got yeah. he's getting some big checks with Bob Iger's signature on them. Um, but I think that of the three you've mentioned, the uh, best performance is Woody Harrelson's. Um, sure. And I, that's probably not that surprising to hear because he is always he's a great, great actor. Yeah. Um, and but I think that he you know he has that magnetism on screen, and I think that that is really important to the character he plays of Tobias Beckett. I think it's really important that he is this sort of magnetic, larger than life character because of you know what how this character develops and what is eventually revealed about this character in the end. Um, I think it's very believable um, th- that well you know I'm, I'm dancing around it a little bit, but um, I think I think it's believable. Um, that people would have been hoodwinked by him to an extent, and that's spoiler. But um, just go ahead, know, just be- stop, stop dancing around it. Just go ahead. Okay, for everyone yeah. who hasn't seen well, Solo okay, yet, so he's spoilers. A tra- he's a traitor, and he's working for Dryden Boss. Um, so, but I think what I'm saying is, I think it's believable that they would trust him um, and believe that he was on their side uh, because you know he, it's Woody Harrelson. Like you know, who doesn't want to be buds with Woody Harrelson? Like you know, he 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 brings that charisma to every role he brings so i think he was perfectly cast in this role yeah and Um, and the character itself like i think that it's in dispute like it's not even disputable that he is han's mentor and like as someone who is mentoring han sure like through the movie he tells him don't trust anyone like whatever you do just don't trust anyone everyone never think oh he means himself it's sure Uh, i I actually like that that like doing that kind of stuff in movies actually like bothers me a lot i find him like really really? annoying i just find it really annoying when someone's like don't trust anyone as as like a proxy for like you shouldn't trust me because i'm gonna screw you over um i just think it's like not very clever i didn't see that coming though i have to say um i i only saw it coming like in the moments right before like i was like well no one else could have told them so it has to be yeah yeah well i mean i figured it was gonna be him like at the exact at the you know, exact moment right before they revealed who it was, but until then, I wasn't sure. Yeah, really thinking. But um, as for Amelia Clark, like I don't know, I kind of go two ways with her performance because I don't think there's a lot of chemistry between her and Alden Ehrenreich. Like I don't know what the ages of the, them are, but she seems like she's a lot older than he is. Um, well, okay, but, so Alden Ehrenreich is 28 years old. Okay, well, and Amelia not. Amelia Clark's 31. Okay, well, I Alden Ehrenreich just seemed really young in this movie, but. Um, but anyway, but I don't, I didn't feel a lot of sparks in their relationship. Um, maybe it's because I know that Han and Leia are going to end up together and I'm like, how dare you try and, you know, be a homewrecker. Um, but, and whatever you do, steer away from any spoilers for Game of Thrones for people out there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I also think that, um, that, you know, she does some good things with this performance, like in keeping us guessing about you know where this character's allegiances really lie she's like, mysterious yeah 
you know, because I mean, we want to believe that oh, she's fully on Han's side, but there's all these other people who are saying, you know, you you don't want to trust her, like you don't know the things that she's done, you know, in you know the time that they've been apart from each other, um, and. So I think that she does a good job because, you know, I, I was – it did keep me guessing towards the end about which way this character was going to go. Like up in, up into up until like this the, – like the last shot we see of this character. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought that um, – I think that the character perhaps is a little bit more interesting than Amelia Clark played it um, just because I think we don't really know at the end of the movie where this character – is like what's next for this character? Um, yeah. How this character fits into the Star Wars canon going forward? Um, so yeah, and I mean Paul Bettany, I didn't really feel one way or another about his performance. I thought it was kind of, um, yeah, it, it I, like I said, it didn't really have an impact on me. I thought he was a pretty bland villain, um, so to speak. Um, you also don't get so, much. You don't get much about this character. Like you just don't get yeah, much of this character. Yeah. So that's sort of my take on those performances. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Woody Harrelson. I don't know if I've ever said a negative thing about Woody Harrelson's acting. Um, I don't, and I don't think I'm going to start now. I think that yeah. he does. I mean, he does such a wonderful job. And one thing that I like about this movie that we haven't talked about yet, and we may talk about when we talk more about the plot. But like, I really like that this movie just like really just kind of rips your heart out pretty early. Um, I was yeah. I was really feeling it. That I mean, like Rogue One. I mean, anytime you're getting like an anthology movie, right? There's like all right, stakes are a little bit lower for killing off characters. And, you know, since we're talking spoilers now, like, you get, you, I mean, you get a whole bunch of characters that die pretty early on in this movie, and you, and you really see the the toll it takes on Woody Harrelson because it's his, it's his kind of crew of people that die during, you know, this first job that they're running because, you know, Infus Nest shows up and, and, you know, they're still trying to get this, um, well, the name of the, name of the, of the uh, material is escaping me right now. But, you know, it's, yeah, coaxium. There you go. Yeah. So they're trying to steal this coaxium as as a job for Dryden Voss and and it goes south and, you know, his pretty much his whole crew, including his love interest, dies and you, and you see the effect that it takes on him. And that's how this relationship between he and on develop. And I just think Woody Harrelson just does such a fantastic job uh, portraying that. I, I think that ultimately his he, in kind of contrast to what you were describing Amelia Clark which I agree with I think she makes somehow makes her character less interesting than it should have been even though it wasn't a very interesting character I, I don't think Amelia I mean you know I know I've told you this already but I don't think Amelia Clark does a very good job in this movie at all uh, with her role but I think Woody Harrelson does the opposite I think he actually makes more of what of what you know in some ways might not be a particularly interesting character yeah that's uh, fair. and I think that he he lifts that up a little bit uh, doesn't reach the heights of what Alden Ehrenreich or Donald Glover does, but he does he does well with what he's given, um, and I and I really appreciate that. And I don't need to retread any ground that you covered with his character already, um, but he, he is admirable. And when it comes to Amelia Clark, I'm I'm not too keen on. I was really disappointed, uh, to be honest. I just think that what you talked about her chemistry with Alden Ehrenreich, which I suppose goes is a two way street, not a one way street, but I just felt like her emotions and delivery in this film were always so were almost so guarded to make the character mysterious that I didn't feel anything at all that like I just didn't get any emotion out of it and you can make an argument that like oh like that contributes to that kind of the 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 mystery of her character which is what makes what keeps you guessing until literally the very end of the movie what's going to happen with her but in some moments I feel like well there like should be emotion being displayed here even if, even if it's mixed emotions there should be emotion and there just wasn't 
and the her her behavior and the way she delivered the performance and i don't know if this was per the direction of ron howard or or you know phil lord christopher miller um or it was her own kind of i don't know decisions in her acting performance i just think that she doesn't she doesn't give very much and i was a little bit disappointed in that because i i I was optimistic that she would give a good performance because she's been so good with game of thrones and i mean i didn't see terminator genesis or whatever that terrible trash terminator movie she was in but uh i expected more and and maybe i don't know maybe maybe just maybe just phoned it in on this one i'm not sure yeah, I mean, I didn't. I don't feel quite as strongly about it, but yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from uh, with your critique. Yeah, and then uh, Paul Bettany doesn't. I don't feel positively or negatively. I don't think that we. He's, get... a, he's a good actor. I just don't think he's given very much to do. Here. Yeah, I mean, he's only given I think two or three scenes in this movie, so it, maybe it's even unfair that we're talking about him like this. But he is like the main villain, so we kind of have to. Yeah, um, which is one of the movie's faults, probably that it doesn't have a great villain. Yeah, and, and the fact that, you, I mean, you don't know anything about his backstory, although that's, that's like kind of like typical Star Wars at this point, it's like not know your main villain's backstory, which is... <laughs> Snoke. Yeah, at Snoke, um, which is fine. I mean, like, you just, there's only so it, much, it, you, there's only so much you can do when you don't know what, what's the backstory behind someone. Yeah, I mean, it is fine. Like, I don't, you know, people are so hell-bent on criticizing The Last Jedi because Snoke didn't have a backstory, but... I think we forget that when the original movies came out, came out Darth Vader didn't no, have a backstory. Well, well, yeah, and and the Emperor, like, mm-hmm. on a, I mean, Darth Vader's backstory we do sort of get in the original. Sure, because you get Luke learned and that he yeah, is that's Luke's true. Father and, and that, um, but like the Emperor is just—he's literally just like a hologram in most of the, the original trilogy. I mean, in the same way that Snoke sort of is. So, Until like, Return of the think, Jedi, you have, so. to, you have to give these the you know filmmakers more leeway. Sure. Maybe in the uh, the future trilogy that we're getting, mm-hmm. uh, the, the trilogy after this one, um, that we'll, we'll we'll learn more about Snoke. I mean, in all seriousness, maybe he'll get an anthology film one day. Yeah, who knows? Yep. Yeah. So Give moving time, people. moving on to the plot. I mean, we've already talked about how it's kind of like a complicated web that doesn't quite untangle itself, and and you talked about how you were uninspired by the film's plot so much so that you didn't even bother trying to make sense of it yourself. And, and, and I really feel that. I felt like a lot of this movie, I was living from action sequence to action sequence. I thought, you know, even even the opening scene is something I really like in the speeder trying to get to the, the, the air, well, we'll call it an airport, but whatever the equivalent of that would be on Corellia. Um, I, I found that it, it was an incredibly entertaining sequence. Uh, Ron Howard does a great job with these action sequences throughout the film. But you go from, you know, from that sequence to the you know the the heist of the coaxium the first time which is i think i think that's a great scene uh on the train in the mountains mm-hmm. i think and then you know you bounce from r.i.p R. by the way to john favreau's character oh yeah the, who i thought was actually a great character i, I kind of wish he had died so quickly on but i think his name was rio but he was the original uh pilot of the ship that um Tobias Beckett escaped on. Yeah, Rio Rio Durant is the character's name. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I actually didn't recognize John Favreau at first, but I did. I did see his name in the credits uh-huh. for it, which was yeah, R.I.P. to John Favreau. But it's only appropriate that you're gonna the person and who's Fanny Newton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I was like Fanny Newton, like like TBT to when she, was wasn't she in Mission Impossible? Was she in Mission Impossible too? Wasn't she Tom Cruise's love interest in Mission yes, Impossible too? I, so. I mean, I know now she's more popular for Westworld, but I, I try to forget that one because it's the worst in the Mission Impossible series. But. Sure, but yeah, so, you know, a, ni- a nice, like, round of supporting uh, characters there, and they all, they all die. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. They all die in that sequence. 
and, but it's a but it's a great scene, right? And and you feel you feel the unlike what I was talking about with Amelia Clark's character, like you feel all the emotions in, in that scene, and, and it's a great it's a great action yeah, sequence, it's a great emotional sequence, and I'm like. That was, I think that was like almost for me. That even might have been the peak of the film. I was like really feeling the movie at that point, um, mm-hmm. it, it, and and never really. It doesn't necessarily fall from from grace too far from that point, but it just doesn't ever surpass it in my opinion. Um, but the action sequences were such a highlight for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like I said, I think some of them were could have been shot a little bit better. Like especially early on, I think it was. I don't know. There was just a lot of. Yeah, I want to talk about that, actually. I didn't talk about that earlier. It, so, it was really... It, the movie was really dark, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, the, the movie definitely was shot in a dark tent. I don't... I mean, I'm not a film expert. I don't I don't know what they did. Yeah. Um, I could probably read up on it. But they definitely shot in a darker tent. I don't know that I had problems seeing characters' faces. So I think to answer your question earlier about whether it's the movie or whether it was the, the cinema you were seeing it in, maybe both? I'm, yeah. Like, it definitely... His intention it was, was really to be grittier. on in the movie now that I think about it. Well, like, the intention was definitely for it to be a grittier film, which is, like, interesting because yeah. I don't know why they were trying to make it a grittier film. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, that's a whole other debate, maybe. But I don't remember having a problem, like, that it was being so dark that I couldn't see. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I think it was really only during the early parts of the movie that I can remember. It just did stick out to me. I mean, certainly it's not a problem in the scene that you just talked about because they're outside. And, you know, it's yeah, I, that's actually a, it is a very well shot scene. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the action scenes are good. I mean, they're what we've come to expect from the Star Wars franchise. Um, you know, whether it's on land battles or whether it's in in space, you know, like the, the scene where he's making the Kessel Run is, is a great scene. Um, so I, I definitely think that for the most part, this movie delivers in that um, in that area. Although, you know, we were we, I, I was missing a lightsaber battle. I mean, what's the Star Wars movie without a lightsaber battle? But I guess Rogue One didn't have any lightsaber battles either. I think that that's the differentiator between when when you get a when you get a crawl and when you don't get a crawl is whether you have a lightsaber sequence in the film. So you, you think? Yeah, I was wondering. What did you think about the crawl or lack thereof in this movie? Well, Rogue One didn't have one. I, yeah, I, I guess it didn't. Now that I think about it, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it stuck out to me more in this one. You do get a lightsaber. I mean, you don't get a battle, but you do. Get, doesn't Darth, yeah, Darth Vader's? In, does he use? Does he show his lightsaber in Rogue One? I don't remember. And there's that scene with. Uh, uh, maybe. He, there's the scene where I can't remember the name of the character right now, but the Imperial. The Imperial person who's in charge of like delivering the Death Star, or whatever, goes to him and he gets oh, force yeah. choked. Tarkin? Yeah, yeah Tark. No, it's not. It's not Tarkin. Is it? It's not Grand Moff Tarkin. Whatever. Anyway, whatever. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I I, 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 actually forgotten that there wasn't a crawl in Rogue One until because I was like, oh my god, there's not a crawl in this movie. This is a huge yeah. deal. And then I was like, thinking, I was like, no, Rogue One didn't have one either. Um, but anyway, um, I really like the action sequences. I agree that there maybe even could have been more action because it was my well, partly because it was my favorite part of the yeah. movie. Um, but nevertheless, I think that really the. I mean, I've mentioned that it was weird that this film like tried to be kind of woke with the droid, and we haven't really dwelt on it too long, so maybe maybe we should avoid it. But yeah, I didn't. I was so disappointed when you say, because when you say that, do you just mean in the terms of her relationship with Lando? Well, no, there's that, and it's also like trying to free all the droids and and get like there's like the equal pay thing, oh, right, and yeah. I don't. Yeah, I think I mean there was I got like I left the first couple times that, and then it just like it just got really annoying, and, the, and then they just killed the character. Well, yeah, you gotta you gotta make Lando cry, so I guess yeah, yeah in in love with your you know super woke. Uh, Was he really though? <laughs> I mean, definitely not. No, they're just using that as a joke. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, I think he cared about the droid because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. but, but I mean, I, I will say just compared to other Star Wars films, you know, R2-D2 and BB-8 are two of my favorite characters in this franchise. And to a lesser extent, like, I enjoyed K2SO in Rogue One. Um, uh-huh. I didn't have any sort of affection for L3, which was disappointing because yeah. I do think the the charm and charisma of the droids in this franchise. Like, like if you put a gun to my head, like, BB-8 might be my favorite character in the franchise. Like, <laughs> um, and it's just disappointing to, to, to have a droid that is meant for you to love that I just don't care about. It was kind of disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I felt the same way. I already kind of yep. touched on that earlier. Yeah, okay, so full full spoilers now. You know, if you didn't want if you didn't want the, the end of the movie spoiled for you, uh, definitely turn away your ears here because you're going to get a huge spoiler. Uh, maybe the biggest spoiler of the movie since the plot's not particularly interesting. Um, but let's talk about let's talk about the end. One, um, well, one I think, and let me less less so and not and less to the point that you want to talk about. But I, I think I, it's a huge deal that I think that Han Solo shoots Beckett at the end of the movie, um, which I think is is cool. I think that that's where you start to get the transformation into Harrison Ford's Han Solo, and then two, Darth Maul. <laughs> Like, yeah, well, yeah, that was, that's the biggest twist to me, that we have a great cameo from Schmodown Star Wars champion, Sam, Sam the Warrior Whitworth. Well, okay, so um, he doesn't he doesn't do the motion capture, but he does the voice, which is right. really strange. Uh, I don't, um, I've never heard of that being different. Which but. is weird, because, I mean, I think Ray Park is still alive. Like, I think he could have easily reprised his role here, but maybe, I mean, maybe that's the point. Maybe that version of Darth Maul you know, has been cut in half or whatever. Um, well, Ray, no, Ray, Ray Park does do the motion capture. He does the motion capture. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think he also did the voice in Phantom Menace. But um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, the Darth Maul part, actually, I'm really excited about that and where, where it is going uh, because um, Darth Maul is a character. It's like, I, it's such a missed opportunity with that character, I felt like, after the Phantom Menace. Because I am actually, I'm a Phantom Menace apologist. Like, I actually think it's a good movie. Um, and you can at me about that if you want. But, Some people um, might be. Yeah, but but I think that Darth Maul is like... Yeah, so... Such, it has such a potential to be a great character because he just, he looks awesome and his lightsaber is awesome. Mm. But they, did, they don't do any development whatsoever of the character in the Phantom Menace. And like... Yeah. He only has, like, one speaking line in the movie. Um, so I actually am really excited about the potential of them possibly exploring more of this character um, going forward because I think there is a lot of untapped potential for this Darth Maul character. Yeah, so turns out that Ray Park does not do the voice in The Phantom Menace. It's okay. Peter Serafinovitz. Um, never heard of him before. Yeah, if you say so. <laughs> yeah, I do say so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've never, I've never heard of him before. But Ray Park only provides the motion capture, so that kind of makes sense that they were using another actor, I guess. And Sam Witwer loves his loves his voice roles in Star Wars. So. Oh yes, gotta love the warrior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to your point, uh, Darth Maul has always been kind of like a cult favorite character. I think I know he was explored to more of an extent in what what now isn't canon anymore, but in this it's like the Star Wars novels. Uh, that came yeah. out before Disney bought and kind of erased all of that as canon. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if, if there are anthology sequels, so to speak. I, I've heard rumors that there might be, like, solo movies, kind of like Indiana Jones movies. So they're not, like, direct follow-ups to each other. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that they'd leave room for a sequel in this movie. Yeah, well, my understanding... Well, so basically what I've heard rumor about is that 
if there are quote-unquote sequels, they won't be like direct tie-in sequels to this movie. Okay. It'll be more, again, kind of like an anthology, kind of almost exactly like Indiana Jones is what I've heard. So there might be yeah. three solo films, but they aren't going to be like immediate follow-ups to this movie. And they might that's involve a different cast of characters around Han Solo. I mean, yeah, that's interesting just because I think that they could make a direct sequel. Like, I, I mean, we don't really know about but we know at the end of the movie that Han is going to meet up or like figure out what's going on with Jabba um on Tatooine like because Beckett has turned him on to some kind of job um that you know we can infer involves Jabba the Hutt and and shows how Han gets entangled with Jabba but like that's another part of the of Han's story that we don't really know um so I feel like they could have you know carried on with that but either way I mean I, I I'll definitely be interested to see what they do yep uh me too I'm I'm totally down for a sequel like I mean, I know I, I, I texted you this after I saw the movie. And I'm like, I'm down. I'm down for more Alden Ehrenreich as, as Han Solo. And I know, I know there are probably. I'm sure there are people out there who don't like his performance. Uh, hopefully, the majority of people enjoyed it because I'm a huge fan. So. And I'll just say, if you haven't seen Alden Ehrenreich's performance in Hail Caesar, um, the Coen Brothers movie, uh, go check it out if you enjoy this movie or if you enjoy his performance in this movie because he, there's like that movie has a great cast, but he arguably steals it. Um, he he's hilarious in this in his role as this sort of like cowboy actor who is asked to do ridiculous things. Um, yeah, so so go check that out if you enjoyed him in this movie. I mean, also go check out Hail Caesar because it's a good movie. But yes, uh, yeah, that's actually what I was going to add. I was like, in general, that's just a really good movie. But. Yep. All right, cool. So let, let's go ahead and in a wrap up phase here. Uh, what was your favorite scene from Solo? Yeah, so I mean, I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. I really liked the moment with Infus Nest where he, you know, they're hinting at this character transformation of Han um, going forward. But since I already mentioned that, I'll, I'll mention a different scene, which is actually the very last scene of the movie um, mm-hmm. when Han goes back to try and um, win the ship from Lando in the card game the second time around. And. Uh, prevents Lando from cheating by taking the card out of his sleeve when Lando's, uh, you know, puts his guard down. Um, I, I think that's a great moment. And, uh, you know, just the reveal of when Lando is trying to go for that hidden card and it's not there anymore. It's just yeah. like a, a great moment. And, you know, Han, of course, gets the Millennium Falcon. So I thought that was a moment of that. You know, that was another moment of here's a here's a sort of an untold story. Uh, that you know, a story that we haven't gotten yet in the Star Wars franchise. How did Han come to own the Millennium Falcon? And I was very, um, unlike the the backstory behind Han's name, I was like satisfied with uh, the conclusion of that. Yeah, I know that's a that's a that's a good scene, and it's a, it's a scene that I've already mentioned. But um, to to go along with yours, I I really enjoyed the uh, the train sequence, the coaxium stealing that coaxium. I think it, yeah. I mentioned it was the kind of the peak of the film. For me, and there are a lot of—I mean, there are a lot of other good moments, but I think that that scene captures all the good things about this movie. Uh, you have Chewie, you have—well, you don't have Lando, so I think the back doesn't capture everything. But uh, you have Chewie, you have Alden Ehrenreich as Han, and, and then you have this this great action sequence where they're trying to uh, steal steal the coaxium, and, and you know the the everything works for me in that in that scene. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's time to put a score on it. Uh, I'm going to go with a 6.8. Um, I think that this is a, like I said, a competently made movie, a, re- a lot of really nice moments for Star Wars fans and some good performances. But overall, the um, incoherence, confusion of the plot, um, 
really brings down what I think could have been uh, a even more solid sell. Yeah, I agree. Between between the very very overly complicated plot and you know, my disappointment in Amelia Clark, I'm going to come in pretty near you. I think that six point five feels more right to me. Uh, the thing is, this movie has a lot of really high highs, and as a Star Wars fan, I think that if you're not expecting too much, you're going to really enjoy this movie. So it's definitely worth going and seeing it. And if you also just want like a a laid back, you know, summer action flick, what you know, a genre of movies we'll be talking about. Uh, a little bit later on in the show, uh, this movie is totally worth seeing. Like it, it's confident enough, and you know, not every it's definitely it's not anywhere near a perfect movie, but it's enjoyable. Agreed. Cool. Alrighty, I think that should just about do it for our discussion of Solo. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing another mega box office release in Deadpool Two. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Scott. Turning from the Star Wars universe to the X-Men universe, it's now time for us to talk about Deadpool 2. Not unlike Solo, Deadpool 2, the follow-up to 2016's Deadpool, also experienced its fair share of directorial turmoil, although not to the same extent that Solo did, as the creative team from the first film of Ryan Reynolds, Tim Miller, Rhett Reese, and Paul Wernick did not all return for this sequel, which caused some people a lot of anxiety when it first was announced that this was the case. Tim Miller, the first film's director, parted ways with the project late in 2016 after the sequel had been announced and he had been attached to it. And almost predictably, of course, due to creative differences with Deadpool himself, Ryan Reynolds, um, and David Leitch, who made his directorial debut last summer in 2017 with Atomic Blonde, was added as director shortly after uh, that departure. Anyway, releasing two weekends ago, Deadpool 2 follows on the heels of its predecessor, picking up two years after the events of the first film where Wade Wilson, a.k.a. Deadpool, played by Ryan Reynolds, has been reunited with his girlfriend Vanessa after the events of the first film where he saves her in the end, um, played by Marina Baccarin, and he's now living a life as a vigilante mercenary, um, kind of towing, basically just defining extremely well the the character genre of anti-hero. Um, things on one job, however, go a bit south, and turns out uh, Vanessa is killed, leaving Deadpool feeling solely responsible for her death, uh, but unable to kill himself due to his mutated superpowers. Uh, the, remain- the remainder of this movie follows Wade as he seeks redemption and boasts a pretty fun supporting cast uh, with an even more exciting list of absurd cameos. Uh, Josh Brolin plays villain-slash-anti-hero Cable. Julian Dennison plays troubled mutant teenager Firefist slash Russell Collins, and Zazie Beetz uh, plays Domino, a member of Deadpool's cobbled-together X-Force, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Um, okay, Scott, knowing you weren't the biggest fan of the original Deadpool movie, which you watched for the first time only, I think, a few days before this one released, I'm curious to hear what you thought of this movie and whether you were more impressed with the second iteration uh, than you were with the first. Yeah, so I never saw, like you said, I never saw the original Deadpool movie when it came out, um, and only just watched it a couple weeks ago in preparation for seeing Deadpool 2, just so I would know what was going on, and, you know, I I wasn't a huge fan of it, like you said, I I mean, I I just, I don't think it was really my type of movie, and that was kind of maybe what um, turned me off of it from the beginning, Um, 
was that I, I, I had heard that there was a lot of, like, sort of juvenile humor, shall we say. Um, yeah, the first movie uh, leans pretty hard in, into what you might call juvenile humor. Yeah, um, and I think that that's pretty accurate after watching it. And I think that just, like, a, a, another thing about the first movie is that just the nonstop stream of snarkiness just gets old by the end. Um, be, and, and, because it's not always funny, unfortunately. Um, and at, and also, you know, the first movie is essentially a love story. And I, you know, I liked both of the characters, but I wasn't, like, super involved in um, the love story, like, super emotionally involved in the love story, mainly because of the movie had such an irreverent attitude throughout. Um, however, uh, this movie is freaking blast. Um, I absolutely love this um sequel to deadpool i thought that um it corrected on everything that i didn't like about the original movie i thought it was so much funnier um than the original movie like i i I don't know um if the writing was just smarter or what you know what it really was but i just found myself laughing like almost every gag like like you know this is one of those movies like airplane or naked gun or something like that where uh, you know, it's just nonstop gags throughout the entire movie. Like, even in the moments where it's supposed to be serious, there's still these, like, you know, there's still this snappy dialogue um, yeah. that makes you, like, that makes you laugh. And so, you know, with with movies like that, inevitably, inevitably there are going to be some gags which don't work. Um, but I think that there are an amazing amount of, uh, amazing number of, of jokes in this movie that do work. Like, I think it's amazingly successful um, for the type of movie that it is. Um, and I think that it blends action and comedy so well in a way maybe that uh, also wasn't quite present in the first movie. Like, I'm not a huge person for slapstick humor, um, but I thought that the, the action scenes, um, you know, they kept me laughing even throughout. And, and a lot of it has to do with you know, Deadpool's mutant power, which is he can't die. Um, so, you know, they obviously they have a lot of fun with that. Um, but I think that some of the slapstick scenes, uh, you know, even though, it, you know, slapstick isn't the highbrow humor, um, you know, that perhaps I was hoping for, um, like, I thought, especially the, you know, when the X-Force get involved, um, yeah, I, I mean, it was hilarious. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the, the ultimate... You know, when you look at this movie from uh, a high level, um, you know, what you have to look at, because it is a comedy first and foremost, is, is it funny? And this movie absolutely is funny. Um, and it completely won me over. You know, I talked about how the first movie didn't, you know, really emotionally involve me in what was going on. Um, I was much more emotionally involved in the plot um, of the second movie, and, you know, of, of these characters and of Deadpool's quest to sort of, you know, discover the true meaning of family, which sounds really stupid and cheesy when I say it like that, um, but it's actually handled really well in the movie, I thought. So this movie was a complete winner for me. Wow, it's so good to hear you that, because I know I, I told you, I've been telling you for so long that I wanted you to watch the first Deadpool movie, because yeah. it is one of the, for me, I, I maybe I'm more willing to involve myself with the lowbrow uh, ju- <laughs> juvenile slapstick humor. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, I don't want 
want to sound super elitist by being like, oh, you know, I don't care for your Jimmy. No, it doesn't. It doesn't audience. resonate with you. Sure. Um, it's it's a particular kind of humor. It leans incredibly exactly. hard it's into just it. Not my taste. Yeah, and and I, I mean, I think this is even how I described it to you after I saw the movie, and it's definitely how I've described it to my friends who have asked me whether or not they should see Deadpool two because if they weren't that into Deadpool one, and I was like, honestly, the humor in this movie is much more evolved. Um, in, both in terms of, you know, if you want to think about it in terms of a lo- like a slapstick versus a clever humor, uh, a more thoughtful humor, you might say. Like th- this movie's, uh, this movie's like go-to joke is just to make fun of society or culture and, or, or, you know, some other culture reference, like whether it's making fun of, you know, the DC universe or whether it's making fun of the other movies that Josh Brolin is in that also might be superhero movies. Or, you know, you, you just name your cultural reference that's relevant to, you know, the last five years. And I'm sure that this movie takes a shot at it at some point. And that's something that I, as, as funny as I find maybe the more, for a time at least, juvenile humor until it gets old. You know, this this is the kind of humor that I can watch for hours and hours and it's not going to get old. Because I, I was a little bit worried that Deadpool 2 would be the exact same as Deadpool 1 and it would really lean hard into the same kind of humor. I'm like, well, you know, I was I could jive with it for an hour and 40, hour 45 minutes or whatever the first movie was, but it might be tough for me to make it through, uh, you know, two hours more of that kind of humor. And it didn't disappoint me at all because exactly like you say, uh, the, 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 the there are different kind of of humor, different kinds of jokes in this movie. And even though I think it's the same kind of jokes throughout the movie, again, it leans really hard into this particular type of humor. It's one that's more nuanced, uh, more clever, um, if you want to call it that. Like, I mean, I'm someone who's kind of into both, but I think it is a more clever humor. I think it's a more thoughtful uh, kind of joke. And I really appreciate uh, it, it, both its self-referential humor, so making fun of itself, um, but also the the shots it takes at everyone else as well. It's something that, that really worked for me. And as you say, I mean, almost every joke lands in this movie because it's so it's so funny. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I think I don't want to overstate it. I think that there are some jokes that maybe they play out a little bit too much, like they they go a little too far with it. Um, like, for example, the one that's coming to my mind is Deadpool after he gets his legs blown off um, <laughs> and they have to grow back. Uh, I thought that this scene was funny at first, like. The, the uh, nod to basic instinct. Oh my god, the basic instinct <laughs> joke was so funny. Oh my gosh, had me dead. But I, I think the scene just went on a little bit too long, and maybe they made just one or two jokes too many about you know Deadpool's. That's also yeah. I mean, that's also part of Deadpool's humor, though. Like they, I mean, yeah, it doesn't excuse it, and if you don't like it, you don't like it. It's not that. I mean, it just doesn't land with you. Um, but they, I think they're. I mean, not to go into spoilers, but they're guilty of of a similar holding on to a joke for too long at the end of the movie uh, before, a, you know, before a certain character or you think that a certain character is going to die. Um, and it's just like, nope, he's not dead yet. Nope, he's not dead yet. Like that, I think that that one. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was another example. But I, yeah, because of the spoiler thing, I didn't. Well, I mean, yeah. they don't know who the character is that we're talking about, so it's fine. That's true, that's true. Um, yeah, yeah uh, but no, I, I agree that that gag, the gag holds on maybe you could argue and i think very validly so that the gag holds on a little too long there as well um but at the same time the fact that they're making fun of it well at least in that moment the fact that they are holding on to that gag for so long is, is something that i just found funny i'm like oh my god they're going back to it again it's kind of funny that they're i'm no longer laughing with the joke but i'm laughing at the fact that they're doing the joke again and it's right. just it's just me maybe 
No, I know. I think that that's that's a fair reaction. And going back to what you said too about the cultural references, like I think that that's something that's not easy to do in uh, a movie because you know a lot of it relies on the audience, you know, understanding what the references are. Um, but I think that they do they do such a good job with um, you know. As you mentioned, you know, the DC Universe, you know, other movies, like, you know, they call Josh Brolin's character Thanos at one point. Um, and, I, you know, they, they touch on things that the audience are familiar with, and they do so in a clever and funny way. Um, however, with one exception, uh, it should have been an exception, I, I will say. Um, but unfortunately, I was like one of the only people in the theater laughing um, when Deadpool... <laughs> held up the boombox outside Colossus's window um, in an ode to the great movie Say Anything. Even It was even playing the exact same song, uh, In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Um, and I like laughed really hard. And this was like one of the few times in the movie where I was alone and laughing really hard in the theater. Um, which is disappointing because even I feel like if you haven't seen Say Anything, like everybody knows the shot of John Cusack with his boombox. Uh, but anyway, that's it's it's these millennials is what it is. They just you know they don't appreciate the uh, the stylings of Cameron Crowe, I guess. Um, I mean, but, I mean that movie's from the eighties, so you know, maybe give millennials a break. But it's a classic. Uh, but whatever. I mean, ha- have I told you my joke or my worst moment in a in a movie theater where I laughed at a joke that no one else laughed at? Um, I think you have from Grand Budapest Hotel. Which was something, was it about the cat dying? Yeah, the cat getting thrown out the window. Yeah, that was, I laughed at that. Too. I was in a packed movie Literally theater, and the only person who laughed when the cat got thrown out the window was deeply uncomfortable. But yeah, but this movie is like, you know, on that note, like, this movie is a huge crowd pleaser. Like, everybody was laughing the entire, like, cracking up the entire movie. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree. And maybe to maybe focus our conversation a little bit more, I'd love to talk about some of the characters and if we want to talk about, uh, I mean, we've, we, I guess we kind of jumped around all of them here. But, I mean, we'll talk about the two main characters, right? So, Ryan Reynolds, who plays Deadpool, and Josh Brolin, who plays uh, not Thanos, although he does play Thanos in another movie, uh, Cable. One of the, I want to start with my one negative about, I mean, these, these, honestly, these aren't even about the performances. But, like, was it just me, or did they do, did they do like a really terrible job introducing Cable, like just randomly cutting to him out of the blue? Yeah. It was like I was like, "Wow, you really couldn't think of a better way to like enter this character into the like narrative." Yeah, I did. You know, you didn't know anything about him. I was like, "Is this guy supposed to be a good guy or a bad guy? Like, what is his end game here?" Um, yeah, I, I, it was definitely very confusing, especially because like it comes. A decent amount of time into the movie, like I feel yeah. like it's, it's at like least twenty or thirty, 30 minutes. minutes into the movie. Yeah, twenty or thirty minutes, and I think it's yeah. definitely. I think it's isn't it just like pretty much immediately after. Ryan, is it like the when Ryan Reynolds blows himself up or whatever? Um, yeah. Like once the once the plot gets back to that point, that's when. That's when, he, and that's I like th- that's so. like half an hour and into the movie. It's shortly before they go to jail because that's you know when he shows up and um, you know there's the first big battle between them. Yeah, so I mean that sounds right. So it's like it's like twenty or thirty minutes in. Um, also, on that note, thinking about something that's really funny in this movie is the the, the James Font the fact they make fun of the James Bond opening credit roll. Oh yeah, that was. Hysterical. 
Monster. Okay, yeah. sorry, just had to give that a shout out because I was I I was dying literally oh, the yeah, entire two to three minutes that that was showing. Uh, anyway, yeah, no. So I just thought it was a really really rough intro to that character out of nowhere. Like you don't even know he's in the future when they introduce yeah. him. But I think that they it turns out to be like I think that Cable turns out to actually be a really strong character. Like I, I agree, yeah. I like that they let Josh Brolin have a little more fun with this role um, than, you know, he did with Thanos. Um, And, you know, it's even kind of a joke. Like, they're, you know, they're poking fun at him, you know, throughout the movie. Like, oh, you know, don't you ever, like, you know, tell a joke or whatever or whatever. But, but So dark. Are you from the DCU? Are you from the DC Universe? Yeah. But even still, like, even though his character is that way, like, you can tell that he's still having fun and doing it because his character is sort of the straight man against all these other, like, you know, bizarre people. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, as different as Deadpool and Cable are as characters, I mean, almost in some ways, besides their, like, anti-hero status, they're polar opposites. They have incredible chemistry on screen. Yeah, I mean, so much so that, Cable makes a really huge decision at the end of this movie. Um, yep, which we'll talk about later. Guess, yeah, I guess we won't spoiler spoil right now. But. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, I was just, I was, I was really shocked. I mean, I Josh Brolin, Ryan Reynolds, great actors, especially in terms of if we're talking about like charisma in roles, like Ryan Reynolds is almost as charismatic as they come. But okay. I mean, I was, I was, I was interested to see how they would interact on screen because I figured. I figured that Cable wasn't going to be, like, the big bad of this movie. Um, and he isn't at by the end. I don't think that's a spoiler. Yeah. Um, but I was I was just really impressed with how well they, they interacted on screen while maintaining their characters, right? So, like, it's one way you can, like, break your break Cable's character or whatever and, like, get, make him a little bit more, like, I don't know, vibing with the rest of the, the group between Domino and... And, and Deadpool, and I mean, there's Colossus too, I suppose, but um, I was really impressed with how well they got along on screen while still being able to maintain their almost polar opposite characters. Yeah, and, you know, moving towards Ryan Reynolds' character of Wade Wilson, like, I think that, you know, we're talking about how the humor in this movie is perhaps a little more, shall we say, grown up. Like, I think that's also mirrors the progression that Ryan Reynolds' character has a little bit in this movie. Like, we we kind of see uh, Wade Wilson, like, trying to grow up a little bit as this movie goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's it's fitting that, you know, the one of the main people who, you know, helps him realize that uh, he does need to grow up and, you know, maybe... Uh, gain appreciation for what family is is a child um, yep i was gonna that's exactly fires. where i was gonna go next uh, julian dennison's um fire fire fist slash uh, also known as russell in the movie russell collins because i mean this is a to talk, maybe to integrate the plot a little bit with this discussion you know this is something that you know he to to just kind of break down some things that happened in the beginning of the movie you know right before vanessa is killed he, they're talking about having a family and having a kid and Ryan Reynolds has thrown this, or sorry, I should say Deadpool has thrown the situation where, all right, like, you know, you can't kill yourself and, you know, you're going to have to figure out, you're going to have to deal with whatever has happened uh, because you can't fix it. And he's given the situation where there's this kid who's really troubled, who really 
doesn't want to be a part of uh, or really wants to rebel against this really screwed up situation that he's in at his own, um, I don't even know, like School for Mutants, um, which is a, a whole nother can of worms that maybe we'll talk about later. But, you know, you have this character who's really in need of someone to care about him. And Ryan and Deadpool is, is given this choice, all right, like, what? How, okay, how do I care about another person uh, in this way? And I'd love to talk about Julian Dennison's performance and also how Ryan Reynolds deals with that, which is exactly what you're about to talk about. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, and it shows the progression of the character that this movie, you know, it takes such a cavalier attitude towards violence and towards killing and, and death, you know, precisely because Deadpool uh, can't die. Uh, but, and yet, like, the main objective which Deadpool has, one of the main objectives which he has throughout this movie is to stop uh Firefist from killing this abusive headmaster of uh, his school because he know like he doesn't want Firefist to become what Deadpool and what all these other people uh, that you know are are in Deadpool's universe have become um, and you know it really it, it does show like this like I said again this character growing up um, you know the fact that he understands that you know maybe he himself can't die but this isn't like a way to live yeah I, I think that's such an interesting way to put it and i applaud the movie for trying to to with its humor evolve in its content so you mentioned that the first movie is basically a love story and in some ways this movie is a you know midlife crisis turn like how do i how do i grow up it's, kind of no, movie. it's a family film he even says it Deadpool oh yeah even that's says true it <laughs> it's a it's a family film uh, fair enough he, he does say that <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. And I don't know if it – I mean, again, we're kind of talking about the plot here, and I would like to talk about Julian Dennison, and this is my this is my fault, not yours. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that you know every plot beat in this story lands for me. I think that yeah. kind of like Solo, it's weakest – this movie's weakest point is its plot ultimately. I think it's less weak than Solo's is. I'll, I want to be clear about that. Um, but, but when everything else really, really worked for me, the plot always didn't. And I think – it isn't because it wasn't well-intentioned because I think it's doing the right things. I think Julian Dennison is the kind, you know, delivers the kind of performance of someone who is desperately in need of a father figure, which at the beginning of the movie, Deadpool states that he wants to be for someone. Of course, he wants it to be for his own kid that he has with his, uh, with the person that he loves, Vanessa. But in this new situation, when he has to, you know, when he's now talked to Vanessa in the afterlife or whatever you want to describe those scenes as, you know, he realizes that, all right, like, you know, this is how I become ready to be again with this person that I love, with Vanessa. Like, this is how it's okay for me to die. Like, I can die once I've done this. And, you know, you can think that might be problematic, whatever. That's fine. Uh, we'll put that aside. But I think that I really like what this movie does. And I really like that because of maybe the way Deadpool or Wade kind of treats Fire Fist or Russell and how everyone has treated Fire Fist slash Russell, you know, through the course of his life so far at the beginning, it becomes difficult to reconnect with him when Wade realizes what his priorities are, when he realizes he wants to help this kid and, you know, kind of embraces the idea of being a hero in some ways. Whereas before in the first movie and even at the beginning of this movie, he's still kind of embracing the anti-hero persona and, you know, he realizes, all right, like, Maybe I'm just gonna do the right thing here and like try to try to be what this kid needs me to be, and 
sometimes what you realize in life is that it's sometimes too late for that. And it almost is too late. And by the time Deadpool, you know, tells Russell that he cares about him and that he wants to help him, that he wants to protect him and that he can protect him, what we find is that, well, maybe it was too late. And it takes a lot over the course of this movie to break through that and to get back to him. And that's something that I thought Julian Dennison, to go back to the performance, I thought he does that really well. He he plays a really hurt teenage kid really well. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe every, to some extent, every teenage kid is hurt at some point and can play that role. But I thought he delivered a pretty, he, he delivered it really well. Yeah. And like, you know, we get this scene in the jailhouse where, you know, Russell doesn't realize that, or, or you know, Deadpool and Cable don't realize that Russell's watching them and basically, you know, Deadpool says, I don't care about this kid at all. And that's kind of, you know, where, when Russell snaps, because he, up until then, he at least thought that, um, Deadpool cared you know, about him. Yep. Deadpool cared about him. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, it's, it is what you're saying. Like, you know, when he does snap and, you know, starts going rogue, like to an extent it's on, it's on, it's on Deadpool. Like, and Deadpool himself has to come to realize, uh, you know, what it means to care about someone and like that he actually does care about Russell. It's not just, he's not just doing this for his own personal gain. Yeah. And I think that that that's the internal conflict that I really enjoy in this movie because at first he is doing it for personal gain. Like he is doing this because he wants, he just wants to die. Like that, that, that's just the truth of it. He wants to die. And there's a point in this film where he realizes maybe there's more. And like, you know, if, if it ends up, where he dies and he can be with Vanessa, that's cool. Like, obviously he's okay with that because that's what he wants at the end of the day. But he evolves to going past that and actually embracing his role, which, again, I think it works really well for me. Yeah, it's like it's almost like, you know, he wants to die all this time, but finally he's found people who don't want him to die in the same way that Vanessa yeah. And, about him. And, uh, and, to, uh, and to maybe twist an idiomatic phrase more, he, he's given a reason to not want to die <laughs> as opposed yeah. to, to – he's given someone – people to not die for as opposed to, you know, people to die for, which I think is often the term right. phrase. <laughs> and, that, and that's why, you know, when, we, when he does have this brief moment where he goes into the afterlife, you know, Vanessa says, no, not now, it's not time. Absolutely. Right. All right. Let's switch gears slightly and let's talk about Zazie Beats as Domino, which I think is an amazing character, which we haven't really touched on yet that much, as well as the X-Force more generally. Yeah. Well, I thought that the X-Force segment of this movie is probably the most hilarious. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and spoil our favorite scene. Is like the X-Force scene is is the best scene in the movie for me. The parachuting out of the plane. Oh my goodness. Um, It's so good. Literally, I couldn't stop laughing the entire time. Like, everybody in the X-Force, like, is great. Like, Terry Crews is hilarious. (laughs) Rob Rob Delaney playing Peter, the guy who has no superpowers whatsoever. Um, Brad Pitt as the Vanisher. Yeah, Brad Brad Pitt as the Vanisher. Spoiler alert, like, blink and you'll literally miss his cameo. But, um... It actually makes me excited for the X-Force movie that they are supposedly making. Um, But yeah, but Zazie beats his performance, like, I think, almost sort of in the same way that Cable's performance, I I, I mean, that Josh Brolin's performance does with Cable, like, it brings a lot of levity, sort of, to the film. Like, she's not one of these people like Deadpool who's just going to crack wise the entire movie. Um, And so she has to... um, you know, she, she sort of like uh, stabilizes things, and you know, keep, keeps Deadpool focused on 
you know, the, the task at hand. And at the same time, actually has like a really unique superpower. She's lucky. That she's just super lucky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which the way that that actually plays out in some of the action scenes is like pretty, pretty cool. Like pretty, well, very well done. Yeah. No, I, I think that she's such an entertaining character. And again, to your point, I think that there are, there are things about her character and her things about her performance that remind me a lot of Cable and remind me a lot of Josh Brolin. And one of those is just how freaking great her chemistry is with with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Like, it just works so well. Like, ev- like everyone's chemistry in this movie just works for me. And her and her and she is no different in that respect. And you know, I was like, all right, I've never heard of Zazie Beats before going into this movie. And maybe that's my own fault. I don't know if she's done other stuff. I had not heard. Yeah, but her, I, I mean, like, apparently her superpower is not just that she's lucky, but she can manipulate luck, whatever that means. It's, like, actually the character's superpower. Um, I don't know what that means. But she, like, especially when you put her in the context of the where everyone's parachuting out, she's, like, you know, just, just floating along exactly like what you'd expect her to do. <laughs> she's, like, the only competent member of the X-Force, yeah, basically. Exactly. After everyone else is just, like, wiped out and, like, incredibly... Very gruesome. Very yeah. gruesome. It's it's so gruesome, but yet because they're playing it for laughs, it just I don't know. It just it's just seems super over the top rather than like realistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the the death of Peter is definitely the I mean for me is the highlight <laughs> where he he survives the parachuting which he shouldn't have because he's the only one without any superpowers. Yeah. And then tries to go help. Uh, I forget the name of of the character who vomits acid. Yeah. But then he get he gets stuck in a wood chipper and vomits acid onto Peter, <laughs> taking his arm off and killing him. It, it, trust me, it's a lot funnier than it sounds. I mean, I don't know. I was laughing the whole time while saying it, so it sounded yeah. pretty funny. Uh, anyway, no, I I, I don't. I mean, also to to talk about one more. I mean, we'll move on from this and we'll start talking about the plot here because we've. I don't think if I, I have anything else to add about Domino, but one character who uh, I loved from the first movie and, and his character like wasn't as great in the second one, but was Depender, uh, the cab driver. But he gets. Oh yes, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, he he gets his moment at the end of the movie. Oh, does he ever? Oh was, my I, goodness! A extremely satisfying moment. Also. T.J. Miller's character. Like, Weasel, yeah. Yeah, this movie needed more T.J. Miller. Well, the first movie had a lot of T.J. Miller, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it, was, did, it which, did, but which was one of the, the high points, in my opinion, because I think he's he's crazy in real life, but he's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the key takeaway of this is that, like, whether you've heard of these people in the plot, and whether even, even if you are, like, some of these people might not even be good actors, um, like, they deliver in this movie, and everything works from a casting yeah. perspective. I mean, the thing about T.J. Miller and his scenes is that it almost feels like he's just doing stand-up comedy. Like, it feels like he's he's improving his lines as they go on. Which I mean, he probably funny. is. I think. I mean, yeah, to, some of them I'm sure are. To be honest, like I think Ryan Reynolds improvs a lot of his lines, and I think mm. that he encourages other members of the plot to improv their lines. Which is, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, sorry, uh, the director from the first movie whose name is already escaping me, Tim Miller, another another T. Miller there. Uh, Tim Miller left the project, but my understanding is that Ryan Reynolds wanted it to be a little bit uh, more loose with the comedy with, in terms of uh, improving perspective, and I think that was one of the things that Tim Miller wasn't a fan of. He wanted more control over 
uh, the yeah. direction, and that's why he left the creative process. But I mean, it works. It works in this movie. Definitely. Cool. So let's talk a little about the plot. I mean, we've talked about X Force already, um, which we can revisit if we want to. But I'd love to talk about something that, which one of the problems that I had with the movie, and, and this is a problem in, in movies in general, and I don't know if this is a concept that you've heard of before, but there's this idea called fridging in movies. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I've uh, heard the term. Yeah, so it's basically when bad things happen to female characters to inspire uh, male characters to be better. Um, and it was I didn't imp- know there was a word for it, but I, this, I also had this problem with the movie. Yeah, and so this... this <laughs> I mean, many movies are guilty of this, and I do not mean to call out Deadpool 2 for doing this, but this movie manages to do it twice, (laughs) which is pretty impressive. Like, you have Vanessa dying to inspire Deadpool to be better. Like, basically, it's it's, it's saying that, like, violence against women inspires men to be better, which is, like, a really nasty idea and is definitely worth mentioning about this movie. But the idea that, like, uh, Vanessa has to be murdered for Deadpool to become a better person and the idea that Cable's family has to be murdered... For him to like seek out, or not necessarily, he doesn't necessarily seek out being a better person, but like he becomes a better person as a result of it. Um, and and I do think this is a problem, and I do think this is a problem in movies. It happens a lot. Dead, again, Deadpool's not unique in this, but but I thought it was impressive that it managed to do it twice in one in in, in its in its runtime. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't. Although I noticed it going on, like the implications of you know the what it's saying about gender didn't really dawn on me. Um, I, 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 like my reaction, at least to Vanessa's death was just that it just seemed like a really played out way of like spurring the action into like motion. Like I, I feel like, you know, they start off this movie like, okay, what are we going to do for the sequel? And they're like, well, what if we killed this girl? Like, you know, it's, it's like the born supremacy almost like the same thing happens in the born supremacy. But, um, but, uh, Case in point about it happens in many movies, and it's yeah, a problem. Exactly. Um, but but yeah, I, like you know, like I said, I didn't really think that far into it, but I did. You know, it did. I did just think on a surface level, this just seems like a really cliche, like really played out way to like, you know, start this movie and to like, you know, convince us that oh, we actually do need a second movie. Yeah, I mean, I get why. I mean, I get how it's like the impetus for Deadpool to, to, to do something more because, I mean, he's such a, I mean, to use your words, and I think it's totally true, like, he's a juvenile person at, you know, in, in the first movie, and, and he doesn't grow up over the course of, of that movie, and he does grow up in this movie, and I understand how the death of Vanessa inspires that, but, I mean, you have to ask yourself, you know, it, why does it take the death of you know, a woman to inspire that. Why, why, like, why couldn't it be Vanessa leaving him because, like, he's just, like, not a good person? And I think there are other ways to inspire change in people and that, like, violence, particularly violence against women, it, like, it, it, it feels like it, it's just such a, it's such an easy way to do that. And, and it, I don't think it sets a good example. Um to, to, to put violence against women on display is not something that like needs there needs to be more of in our society. And even though it works as a plot device in this film because it's believable, I don't know if it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely hear you. I, I, I think that they do, I don't know. In the end, I think it, it works out okay because it's not just a plot. Like, it's not just something that spurs him into action. Like, it actually has meaning. Like, 
it, it actually has ultimate meaning like in this film like it, it's necessary like for that to happen in order for Deadpool to come to the important realization that he comes to at the end of this movie so I think that maybe this movie does it a little better than some do yeah um, I mean you still have cables it, mm, yeah. yeah that's true I mean I, I I didn't even think about that at all yeah I hear what you're saying. I do think that they do well. Maybe they do more with it because the death I mean, of Vanessa. Vanessa. Vanessa is the only person who cares about uh, Wade at all. Like, at, or right. at least the start of this movie. And yeah. like, if if you know if if she just were to leave him, then the whole movie would probably be him trying to win her back. Which, like, I I don't know. I feel like this way is probably a little bit better because it forces him to realize something about with the world, it. realize something about yeah. himself. Uh, so it, it still ended up working for me, even though it was kind of a tired plot device. Yeah, I see what you're saying, and I and I think that's fair. I think I think that's a totally fair argument to make. Um, again, it, it you get the whole as well. Okay, to like switch gears maybe and talk about one that I think is less justifiable is cables. And again, I understand it's like, all right, what else is going to inspire him to go back in time and do what it is that he's trying to do? Which um, I mean, we haven't talked about this, and this isn't a spoiler. But like his mission is to kill Firefist, Russell Collins, the the child that Deadpool's trying to protect, um, and I, I I think that the fact that you get this really violent display of future Firefist basically killing uh, killing Cable's family with, with like minimal context, I think is like I mean it feels unnecessary um, to me. Again, I can understand, like, as a plot device, it works because, like, we as a society are and can, can re- like, or at least I shouldn't maybe say that, go that far. But, like, as a person, I can understand, like, my loved ones being killed inspiring me to do something about it, right? Sure. And it's just – it just so happens that – and I think that th- maybe this is, like, the underlying societal problem is that, like, the, the kind of default of, all right, if you're going to kill someone's loved one – Almost always it's going to be a woman or, like, a girl. So it's tough. It's tough there. Um, but it's not I, – I think that it's a problem worth noting. And, and even if they do work sure. okay in this film, it happens a lot. And this film's equally guilty. So. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's that's worth pointing out. Cool. Well, we don't have to draw on that any longer. Um, I think maybe worth talking about – we talked about Deadpool's character arc in the film and how we – we vibe with it um, and how it's an evolution from the first film. And like I said, we've already talked about X-Force. So it's probably worth talking about the end now. So we'll go full spoilers here and we can talk about whether the ending works for us and then also the credit scenes because they're also another highlight of this movie. Yeah, well, I think we kind of, you kind of touched on a little bit earlier maybe my problem with the ending of the movie, which yeah. is just that um, – it goes on too long, or at least, you know, the, the bit with Deadpool dying. But I also think that, I think the movie in general is too long. I know that's going to stun you that I... Uh, we should start getting a counter for how many conclusion. times you say that phrase yeah. in this podcast. We, we probably should. If someone on Twitter wants to do that, go for it. But, um, but I think that, like, for example, the introduction of Juggernaut is like... Played by Ryan Reynolds, I have to say. It is played by Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> But I feel like it's just kind of distracting. Like, I feel like he doesn't serve a lot of purpose in the movie except just to provide another villain for them to, like, you know, ultimately have a showdown with. I, it just felt like when he was introduced, it was like, oh, here's how we're going to have another 25 minutes of this movie. Uh, I mean, 
he, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that he's introduced pretty early. Like he's introduced with Russell in the in the prison, and he becomes. I mean, Russell kind of joins forces yeah. with him to basically, you know, I mean, Ryan, Ryan, I mean, Deadpool in prison tells him, like, what you need to do is you need to make friends with the biggest guy, and that's how you're going to stay alive. And so that's exactly what he does. He makes friends with the biggest guy, the guy who's in, like, the lockdown ward of the prison. And he, and I think, I mean, you could you could argue that these two characters of Fire Fist and Juggernaut are using each other for their own ends, right? Juggernaut wants to get free. Juggernaut wants to just, like, I don't know, kill people, essentially. I, it might be more nuanced than that, and I just missed it in the film. But, well, um, I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, is we don't know a lot about Juggernaut. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the only context you might know is from the other X-Men movies that he's in. Um, yeah. I'm not going to – I don't think it's worth discussing that here. But I think that to, – to that point, I think that Juggernaut wants to – we'll just simplify it like that, right? Juggernaut wants to be free from this prison, and Fire Fist wants – to be friends with the biggest guy, so one, he can get out of prison, and two, can go back to his high, like the mutant school that he was at, and kill the people responsible for it. And I think that they both view each other as a means to an end. And so I get what you're saying, because he definitely is introduced as, a, like, okay, what's another big set piece we can have? But I yeah. do think that he serves more of a purpose in this movie than that, and he isn't introduced in the last, like, half hour just to be that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it's a small complaint because Fair. Yeah. I think that there are some good gags that end up coming out of the extra 20, 25 minutes of this movie. And I, you know, I really enjoyed this movie overall. Um, as far as the credit scenes go, though, uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, they're great. Like, Before you get I, to that, I do. you did mention that you wanted to talk about Cable's big decision earlier. And yeah, so, well, I just, I think what I said was I didn't want to spoil what it was at that point in the review. But, sure. I mean, I think at this point we've kind of discussed his character and, and why it's an important decision, ultimately. Well, I'm and, saying we haven't talked about what that decision is. Okay, well, the decision is that he decides that he's going to bring Deadpool, like, back to life. Yeah, so basically sacrificing his one chance once he, okay, to, to like, flesh out Cable a little bit more. The, he wants to kill Fire Fist before he becomes adult Fire Fist that kills his family. So his family will then, it'll kind of like, I don't know, like snip the timeline and his family will be alive. And so he'll mm-hmm. return back to the future, movie reference, um, and be with his family again. And then in the final moments of the film, in order to save Deadpool's life, who is dying, we get the uh, unending gag of him being very close to dying. Uh, Cable uses his last charge of going back in time to go back in time what like and i don't even know how far he goes back not not that far um he uses the time stone yeah, yeah right you're right, i forgot yeah he <laughs> thanos uses the time stone to go back in time too <laughs> that's actually a really i didn't even think about that. that's funny yeah um not the not the first time that josh brolin <laughs> manipulates that, time he's using the time stone. not the first time jo- josh brolin manipulated time in the month of you know april 27th to may 27th <laughs> um anyway he goes back in time to basically give Deadpool uh, the coin that he had taken from him, which was the coin he had given Vanessa for their anniversary, and puts it on his chest exactly where uh, he's going to shoot Deadpool um, at the end of the movie. Right. Uh, saving his life and also making which it impossible. What nice is? And it's an, and making it impossible for Cable to return uh, to his family. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, 
like like we kind of talked about this is this also goes towards him becoming sort of a hero i mean an anti-hero at least in the same way that deadpool kind of is or you know realizing that you know maybe there are some more there are some things more important than revenge those people would be wrong there's nothing more important (laughs) than revenge yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah and then the credit scenes which are just i mean I mean, they're easily my second favorite series of scenes in this after the uh, X-Force parachute scene. So we have cleaning up the timeline where (laughs) Deadpool goes and kills the other Deadpool from... Wolverine. Was it X-Men Origins Wolverine? Yeah, that not... Yeah, whatever the first Wolverine movie was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was not a good... Which was not a good X-Men movie. Then we have the whole bit about Green Lantern, which is great. Which is the best part, right? So you have Ryan Reynolds... um, with the script for Green Lantern, and then he's Deadpool appears behind him and executes him, and you just see the blood splatter all over the <laughs> Green Lantern. It's so funny. Um, There's also this isn't during the credit scene, but just uh, made me think of it for some reason. Like another like, gag that was like went missed in this movie was during the. Um, there's a at one point there's a news broadcast which is being shown, mm-hmm. um, and one of like the, the things running at the bottom is like Christopher Plummer turns down role in Deadpool 3. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't even see that. That's crazy, <laughs> really? It's so, it's so quick. It's so quick. Oh, that's... Dang, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'll probably see this movie again. Um, yeah. So I'm going to look for it. That's really funny. Yeah, no, the, the, the credit scenes are good. There's like five or six. There's a lot of them. Um, some Well, a couple of them are more meaningful than others because what we looked at is that, you know, big, big spoilers that it turns out just like in every other Marvel movie, death doesn't matter because... Deadpool just go, uses so he has Negasonic uh, teenage, teenage warhead. yeah teenage warhead fix fix the time manipulation device that Cable's using to then so he can take it and go back and save Vanessa save the X Force team or save Peter specifically I think it's uh-huh. just Peter he saves maybe um, and a couple well, there's like one other one right am I missing one other? no 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 that's uh, it that's all five no that's all five. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's yeah, there's the scene where they fix the time device. He saves Vanessa in the second scene. He saves Peter in the third scene. And then you have him killing uh, the original Deadpool from X-Men Origins. And then you have him killing Ryan Reynolds and Green Lantern. Um, pretty great stuff. It really was. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We already have talked about our favorite scenes. But do you have any other scenes you want to call out that's not the X-Force parachute scene? Uh, I think yeah, I think I've kind of we've kind of touched on most of the the moments that I really enjoyed. Um, like the main ones being that parachute scene, and also the boombox ode to say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those were the, at least humor wise, were the standout moments for me. Uh, but I mean, yeah, overall, this movie is just it, it's it's everything you were you want in a summer movie, basically. Yeah, and the only other scene that I want to mention is that it was alluded to earlier, but now since we're talking spoilers, like I want to dive fully into it, is that Depender destroys the yeah. uh, the the principal of the, the mutant school, yeah, headmaster of the headmaster. The headmaster, yeah. Um, they're just like hey, they, Deadpool. What does he say? He's like, I heard you coming from a mile away. Yeah, yeah. I heard. Trying not to laugh. Yeah, because so, they had just decided to let him live because they're better. Like they don't have to kill him because they're better than that, and then. You hear the giant. I don't. Is it an eight? Like I don't know how. It's a huge truck, isn't it? Yeah. And just like crash through the school grounds and kill and just completely level, run over. Because he's 
wanting to be a, a contract killer for the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, so Depender, who I thought was an underwhelming character through most of the movie, really delivered at the end. Yeah. All right, yeah, so why not? Let's go ahead and put a score on this movie. Deadpool 2. Well, I think this is an interesting movie when you think about ratings because, like, on the one hand, you know, it's not a perfect film, I guess you could say, but when you look at what this movie was aiming for, like, it almost it hits pretty much dead on bullseye. Um, so I'm not going to give it a 10, but I am going to give it a 9 because I really... Wow. Uh, like, I really appreciate a movie that, like, you know, it, this movie isn't going to win any Oscars. It's not going to be nominated for any awards or anything like that. Um, it has one goal in mind, um, and it, like, accomplishes that goal, like, to a T. So, I, you know, I really think that uh, it deserves to be rated very highly for that. So I'm giving it a 9. All right, man. I, I didn't – I – woo. I'm, I'm floored that you're giving Deadpool 2 a 9. No, it is. It, I mean, it's a great movie. I loved it. Um, 8.0 for me. I think that uh, the plot is it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't deliver on the plot for me. I think that some of it's like really forced. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that. I mean, I don't think I. I don't think that I personally can rate movies on what what they're trying to do because I think there are a lot of movies that they aren't trying to aspire to like being perfect. And if I rated those movies based on what they were trying to aspire to, I think that'd be really difficult. That's just a personal thing for me. Everyone rates movies differently. Yeah. Um, but I think I think anyone who goes and sees this movie is going to get exactly what they want from it, and so I can't recommend it highly enough. Yep. Cool. Well, I think that should wrap things up for our discussion of Deadpool two. Let's take another break, and when we return, we'll be doing our house cleaning work with some things we've been watching, our discussion topic of the week, and some movie trivia showdown before we wrap things up with some news. We'll be back in a sec. <laughs> Welcome back to part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I know you've had a little bit more free time on your hands since wrapping up 1L a few weeks back, so what else have you been watching recently? Yeah, well, so I uh, wanted to use this segment to talk about something that I've been watching. It's not a film, um, but uh, it's something that I think is worth discussing, um, and that is it's the second season of a show that I've brought up on this show um, multiple times before. And that, in fact, on the last episode, I mentioned it in relation to Tully, and that is uh, 13 Reasons Why on Netflix. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the show, I think most people probably are, but if you're not, um, this is based on a young adult novel by Jay Asher that came out probably over 10 years ago now. Um, and I read the novel when it first came out, um, but last year it was adapted into a Netflix series, um, the first season of which focused on the events of the book um and the, the book is about a teenage girl named hannah baker who commits suicide and leaves uh, a series of cassette tapes um for some of the students in her school uh explaining why she did what she did and basically uh each person who receives the tapes learns from the beginning that they are one of the reasons why um 
that she she decided to commit suicide, and then she of course she goes on to over the course of those tapes to describe how uh, each person played a, a role in her decision to end her life. Um, so obviously the the premise is very uh, gripping; it, it, it grabs you from the very start because um, it, it's just not a topic that you see addressed in a lot of media. And I think that's one of the reasons why the show became such a sensation in its first season. And was very critically well received. Really seemed to connect with a lot of people. Um, but there was a fair amount of controversy too um, from a number of people who felt that the show glamorized um, its portrayal of suicide in the sense that basically, basically that it glamorized suicide um, by showing the effect that um, Hannah's decision to end her life um, had on. The, these people in her school who contributed to her death, saying that um, it, basically it was it was um, inspiring teenagers who maybe have these suicidal uh, tendencies to say, well, hey, look at what her decision did um, to these people, um, and so sort of glamorizing it in a way. Now, personally, that was not my take on the first season, but I, you know, I, I do to an extent see where the controversy is coming from. Um, but personally, I thought that the first season was extremely powerful, extremely important. But with that being said, I was not very open to the idea of a season two, just because, first of all, I mean, the premise of season one is uh, it seems to have a pretty clear beginning and end. Um, you know, when the season is over, we've heard all of the reasons why Hannah has done what she's done. Hannah is is dead. Um, and so there's not really a lot of places to go with the story from there on, especially because, I mean, this is where the novel ends as well. Um, but because the show was so successful, it was probably inevitable that it was going to come back for the second season. Um, but I did go into the second season with a lot of hesitancy um, because it would be going outside the novel and because the story, in my opinion, didn't really lend itself to um, more episodes. However, I think that uh, the second season, and I will say that I haven't watched all of it. I've, I've gotten through eight episodes so far. This is one of those shows that's just so heavy that you can really only watch one episode at a time, maybe two, or at least that's my opinion, because um, it just weighs on you very heavily. Um, I do think that um, the second season has a lot to like, um, and overall, I my feelings towards it are positive. Like, I don't think that uh, it reaches the heights of the first season certainly not at all um but it does have um some very powerful moments and i think that actually the the writers do a good job of um extending the story because now what we're getting in the second season is that hannah's parents um played by kate walsh and brian darcy james have decided to sue the school um and allege that uh they didn't do enough um to protect Hannah from bullying and that specifically the guidance counselor, Mr. Porter played by Derek Luke, um, really did not act when Hannah expressed her, um, feelings in some detail to him and, and did not, um, really investigate what Hannah, um, was alleging. So that stuff is good. And it's, it's interesting because the first season was all about Hannah's story and we're getting Hannah's side of the events because we're getting the tapes, um, and so we're just getting Hannah's telling of the story. And of course, you know, Hannah's a very sympathetic ca character. We want to believe everything she's saying. Uh, but in the second season, what we're getting is everyone else's perspective. So and the way that there's, this is done is through the testimony of these other individuals 
Um, so, you know, all of basically all of the players in the first season have their moment where they testify at trial. I mean, Jessica, Alex, uh, Marcus, uh, Zach Dempsey, all of these all of these characters who were on the tapes um, are testifying and, um, you know, sort of telling their side of the story. And that's interesting because we find out that there are a lot of uh, things that maybe Hannah left uh, on the tape, left out on the tapes, which I mean, is natural. Like you wouldn't expect um, that every single detail is going to be included in the tape. So I think that that's very believable uh, for the, the um, writers to kind of peel it back and say, well, Hey, let's look at this from the other side. Like, what are we leaving out here? You know, what did Hannah maybe even get wrong? Um, so I think that when it explores those areas, um, it is very interesting. Um, some of the areas where I don't think it, it is as successful, and I actually think one of the, the main areas is something that is sort of born out of the controversy uh, surrounding the show. Um, because people feel that it glamorizes suicide, I, feel, I think that the show really overdoes it with the like depressing, dark, like completely humorless um, treatment of this material. Like, it just seems like everything is pretty hopeless for these characters, and even when, you know, it seems like we're building up towards some, you know, making progress, um, you know, something comes along that could just completely takes the wind out of um, everyone's sails. And I think that, in some sense, that's a response to the controversy of the first season because, you know, people were saying, well, look at what, you know, Hannah's decision, look at the effect that it had on uh, these people and made them want to change who they are. But I think in the second season, what the writers are really trying to hammer home is that, well, maybe it didn't really change everyone in the way that Hannah hoped it would. I mean, these characters like Bryce Walker, who obviously is the villain in this whole piece, he's still the same person he's always been. He's still, you know, an evil, disgusting, repulsive character. Like, the tapes haven't changed that. And some of the other characters, I mean, you know, it's the same things. Like, Zach Dempsey, we have this whole storyline about him and how, you know, he, he puts on this face when he's... And hanging out with people like Hannah and Alex and Jessica, and he, you know, is wants to be a sympathetic character. Seems like he's a friend to these people, but at the same time, you know, he's on the baseball team with Bryce, and you know, in a situation where he's with all of those guys, and, and maybe Bryce, you know, says something out of line, he's not going to be a person who's going to step up and defend them. So he's kind of just the classic fence sitter character. But he's still, you know, he, he won't renounce Bryce, even despite all of the evidence against Bryce. You know, I think that the, the like, I like that the show is trying to make that point and trying to say, hey, look, like, you know, you're not exactly right about what we're doing here. Like, we're not saying that everyone has done a complete 180 because of these tapes and that Hannah's suicide has made everyone, like, into a better person or at least want to be a better person. Like, that's really not the case in the case of some of these characters um but i think that you know maybe the downside of that too is that it doesn't give us a lot of characters to root for like in in you know the first season we had hannah we had hannah who was this emotional center of the whole story and even though we know the end of the story like we're connecting with hannah the whole way like we're sympathizing with her story um and so she's you know the character we can root for even though ultimately we know how the story ends um but we don't really have that in the second season. And it feels just a little awkward because we're following all of these characters. You know, we're following Clay and Alex and Jessica and everyone who was on the tapes in the first season. And obviously, you know, Clay is sort of the whole protagonist of the whole thing in addition to Hannah. And 
you know, we're supposed to see him in a particular way. But it's just a little awkward that in the first season we have, you know, all these people who are on the tapes and the show is kind of asking us to take a look at these people and criticize them, you know, just to point out the flaws in their behavior. And yet here we are turned around in season two and now we're expected to just root for all of these people. And, you know, it works with some characters more than others because, you know, like Clay, we see that he is trying to be good. Um, but it just seems like the show really shifts its allegiances a lot and maybe, you know, goes back on some of what made the first season so powerful because, it, you know, it's calling people out like Clay, you know, his, his tape is, is all about the idea, not that he has specifically done anything wrong, but that he hasn't done anything at all. He's seen what all was going on and he refused to do anything, refused to say anything, even though we know that deep down he does care about Hannah. Um, not even deep down, really. Um, but also, the show tries to you know, shoehorn in Hannah, maybe in response to this, by having Ghost Hannah show up and lead Clay through, you know, his his quest for the truth and some of these scenes. And it just it feels wrong. Like it feels like it feels very um, contrived, and it just feels like a way to you know bring Hannah into the show because she was the strongest character in the first season. You know, even though there's not a natural role for her in like a natural part for her to play in the second season. It just seems like a way of shoehorning her in where she doesn't really belong. Um, so that, you know, is kind of another awkward thing. Um, but overall, I think the performances are, are really strong. Like I think students, um, you know, all of the actors do, do a fantastic job. Like I think that Alicia Bow, who plays Jessica in particular is really strong. Like we, we really feel the pain of this character, uh, is going through, um, with having to go back at school, having to go back to school after all that she's been through. Uh, so I think that she gives a great performance, but you know, to me again, the strongest performance in this whole thing is by Kate Walsh. She plays Hannah's mom. Um, like she, she needs to get an Emmy and I don't think she will because you know, this show is for whatever reason demonized as being, you know, a teen drama or whatever. Um, but her performance is really like extraordinary in the way that she portrays the grief that this mother is going through. Is like, I mean, nothing really that, like, I don't even really have anything to compare it to. Um, you know, we have so many movies and shows about grieving mothers and grieving parents going through like unspeakable events. Um, but I, you know, I've never seen such an authentic portrayal of that grief as Kate Walsh gives in this show. And that, you know, that continues into the second season. Um, so I think that her performance is really something special. Um, and so, yeah, overall, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about the second season. I have a lot of specific thoughts, you know, tweet at me if you want to know more. Um, but I don't think that this is as strong as the second, as the first season. Um, but it definitely, um, exceeded my expectations. My expectations were pretty low going into it. And, it, it has been a lot better and it's still like extremely watchable. It's still very gripping, like, uh, you know, maybe not quite at, at, in the way that the first season was because it doesn't just emotionally drain you like the first season. Um, but I mean, I, th I think it's still worth watching. And if you liked the first season, uh, it's pretty much a guarantee you're going to like this season as well. So that's my take. Well, that's quite a take. I think that uh, I, I know I, I don't have much to contribute to the discussion because I have not watched either the first season or the second season. I know I've mentioned to you before that it's on my extremely long laundry list of things to watch, and I'm not sure if or when I'll get to it, but I, yeah, I do I, want I mean, to. I'd, def I'd definitely be able, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on it as well. Yeah, well, 
I'm I'm not going to count it out, but there's there are too many good things out there, unfortunately, and I oh, yes, and I do yes. not have enough time. <laughs> but I try. I I will. I like many things out there that I'm missing that I should be caught up on. I will continue to try to to push did, through this one. Did you ever read the book at all? I don't. What the is the book? Thirteen Reasons Why is that what it's called? Yeah. No, I read, I mean, I read a, a, a book, oh goodness, I'm forget, uh, Reconstructing Amelia. Um, oh, that's that's an amazing book. Yeah, I read that book, uh, which is also about, oh well, it's also about a, a, a high schooler jumping off a building. Yeah, um, well, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, not really though, that's what the story's about, but, but yes, on, well, on well, our future book podcast... We can discuss that book because it's also extremely good, and I recommend you check it out. Yeah, There's, I mean that, that, that's, that's our book, cl- book club pick of the week. My spoiler. That, I mean, that's not a spoiler. That happens like the first chapter. That's like the very first yeah, thing that happens in the book. That's what the plot is centered on. Yeah. No, because yeah, because you know exactly what happens. Oh well, you know the outcome of what happens right at the beginning of the book, yeah. and, it, and it reconstructs what happens over the course but of. Yeah, it. check it out. Reconstructing Amelia by Kimberly McCrae. Yep. Uh, very very good storytelling. Very com- very compelling way to present a story. I think. Um, yeah. as it goes both directions as, it, as you have one plot line which speeds toward the jumping off of the building which happens in the very first chapter and then another line that follows her mother uh, after the events of uh, what, ha- what of Amelia jumping off a building so yeah with that being said I don't think that it that book really focuses on teen suicide in the way that 13 reasons oh no like, no, it's no, no it's no, definitely no. more of a thriller in like the gone girl vein oh I I might disagree with that. I thought it explored bullying a, a lot. Well, yeah, I think it does. Like, I mean, I, ultimately, I think it has way more lasting impact than Gone Girl did. Um, but I don't think that it is quite as hard-hitting as 13 sure. Reasons Why. I haven't read Gone Girl, um, but I, I do actively try to forget watching that movie because it's horrifying. Um, it's a great. It's a great. I mean, it's an extremely well-done movie. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean like that. It's, it's a fantastic movie, but I, yeah. it is a haunting movie to dwell on. Yeah. Yeah, that and Prisoners, which I believe came out in the same year. I'm just like, oof. Yeah. <laughs> and bo- both very good movies, but both things I'm not necessarily trying to dwell on too much after the fact. Yeah, very true. All right, moving on. I think going from from a hard-hitting thrillers, so to speak, to maybe some more fun summary action flicks as our discussion topic this week, we want to talk about our favorite summer action flick of the last five years. Uh, Scott, I'm gonna. I know you. You normally take our discussion topic, but for the first time ever, I actually contributed to our discussion topic of the week and, and determined it. So I'll let you go first this time. Yes. So for those who have been following our discussion topics the past few weeks, um, you know we, what we have been doing is kind of the going through each year and saying what our favorite movie was mm-hmm. every each year that we've been alive, um, and saying what our favorite movie from that year was. Um, so far, we've done but, 1995 and 1996. Yeah, so, but we're not, obviously we're not doing that for this week, but uh, never fear, we will be returning to that. Yeah. Um, when we have no better uh, discussion topic or, or compelling uh, linkage to what we're actually talking about, uh, obviously this week we talked about two very compelling summer action flicks, and so we thought it worthwhile to discuss what we thought some of our favorite summer action flicks have been over the past few years, uh, maybe with a focus away from superhero movies, although I, I will be guilty of choosing a superhero film. <laughs> I figured you would. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but we, so we'll be returning to that um, in the probably near future. Um, yep. So and we will yeah, we will reach its conclusion. We will get all the way through 2017. And I mean, by that point, it will be it will be past the summer action flicks of 2018, so we can also do that. Yeah. Um, okay, so 
So, with that being said, um, favorite summer action flick of the last five years. So, tw- um, so 2012 to 2017, to be fair, since we haven't gone through 2018 yet. Yeah. So, when you gave me this topic, um, one movie jumped into my mind really quickly. Um, and, and we saw it together. Movie. And we and this is amazing. We, we saw this movie at the same time. We, in the I, same know, I, was, I was actually going to point that out. I, I, was, I did, wasn't sure if you remembered that or not, but we saw this movie together um, in the theater. Um, and... I don't know what it is about this movie. I mean, I, I know what it is that makes it so great. Um, but I also think that it's like one thing that plays into its greatness for me is just the, how surprised I was at how great it was. Um, because the trailers were so bad. Like, I don't know if you remember the trailers for this movie, but they, I don't, I don't remember like, them. Yeah. Well, they, but I mean, they were like actually bad. Like it did not make the movie look interesting at all. Um, and then yet, the, when the reviews started coming in, I was like, oh, well, maybe this is actually worth checking out. Um, but that's a movie from 2014, directed by Doug Lyman, starring Tom Cruise, called Edge of Tomorrow, or as I believe it's now uh, called on DVD, Live, Die, Repeat. Uh, I think that's actually, it, it, they, they uh, called it that on the DVD because so many people actually thought that that was the title of the movie based on the trailers. Like, that's how bad the trailers were. They couldn't even get the title right. Um but this is, of course, uh, the, the sci-fi thriller from Doug Lyman, um, and it, it stars Tom Cruise as a soldier um, who has to uh, live the same day over and over again until he can uh, defeat uh, this group um, of robots known as the Mimics. Um, uh, and I think, know, I think they're aliens, not robots, but... Yep. Right, so, some sort of sci-fi creature, um, but so it's it's sort of a, it's a sci-fi action spin on Groundhog Day, um, and you know this Groundhog Day trope is something that we've seen in a lot of movies recently. Um, whether it's this movie, whether it's Before I Fall, which came out last year, whether it's Happy Death Day, which also came out last year, they've all used this Groundhog Day formula. But actually, I think all three movies are very successful because they have used it in different ways like happy death day used it in the context of a slasher movie um and uh before i fall gave it gave it to us in sort of a coming of age almost 13 reasons why type story um and this movie gives it to us in a big summer sci-fi blockbuster um and one of the things which i really like what this movie does um which actually kind of ties into what we talked about with Deadpool two almost is the way that it uh, takes this I takes this central concept of Tom Cruise not being able to die and actually like brings a lot of humor out of it um, and you know ha- has a lot of fun with sort of him you know experimenting different ways to achieve his mission and, and failing in a lot of spectacular ways and, and it, thus dying in a lot of spectacular ways um, and. Um, but, but I, I just think that this movie is, like, the plot is actually very interesting um, and engaging. Uh, I think that Tom Cruise is, I mean, he's, he, I think he's the best action star there is right now. Um, like, I Chris, watch him. Chris he, Pratt? I mean, that, that he's, like, the only competitor. <laughs> I don't know, I'm serious, though. Like it, yeah, I think he needs a few more titles under his belt before he can claim that. Because Jurassic World, in my opinion, sucked. Um and something a topic we will revisit soon (laughs) yeah but yeah tom cruise has just been delivering in this sort of area since i mean since the 90s um since mission impossible one right so 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and like, well, Top Gun I, even. Honestly, sorry, Top Gun even. You know. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, and I and I can really think of any of these movies where he hasn't delivered. He's, I mean, he's Carl Malone. He's the mailman. You know, he always delivers. Um, and, <laughs> I can't believe you just made that joke. <laughs> and he, you know, this movie is no exception. Like, he just has such a great charisma, but he's also like he has the acting chops. Like, he's not just an action star. He's not just, you know, Sylvester Stallone. I mean, we can look at people like Sylvester Stallone or Jason Statham, these people, you know, maybe they have a lot of, you know, charisma as action stars, but when it comes to acting chops, yeah, don't necessarily deliver, but Tom Cruise, he, he absolutely does. Um, and also, who delivers in this movie is Emily Blunt, his co-star, um, who, you know, is another actress who pretty much always delivers. Um, like, we talked about her performance in A Quiet Place recently and how great it was. Um, and I think that she uh, and Tom Cruise make a great pair in this movie. Um, and it's just it's just an extremely fun movie. Like, it's everything you want out of a summer blockbuster. It's got humor. It's actually got really good action sequences. It has a very sort of twisty, turny plot um, that keeps you guessing. Um, and it's got, you know, good-looking people in it. Um, so, it, you know, and a, again, I think that the fact that I didn't expect, um, how good it would be, how good this movie would be probably adds to my, uh, enjoyment of it, my praise of it, but ultimately, I mean, I think it is just a really, really strong movie and, you know, definitely lives up to all the critical acclaim that it has received. Yeah, no, I think that, I remember we both walked into that movie, you being more familiar with having seen the trailers. I'm not even sure if I watched the trailers. I don't remember them if I did. Um, but I was just like, oh, it's it looks like a beat-em-up summer action movie. Cool. Like, we're going to burn two hours of this. It's going to be fun. We're going to talk about it after, and we're going to have a few laughs. And we walked out of it, and I think I remember, like, look, we looked at each other, and we were like, oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, another um, thing, which I didn't mention, but credit to Doug Lyman, too, who directs this movie. Like, he is a... Uh, very veteran action director um and it clearly shows in this movie like you know going back to the born identity um yep. obviously was sort of the first action movie where he made his name like you know even then you could see what a what a competent what an excellent action director he was and also while we're on the topic of doug lyman uh shout out to one of my uh favorite underrated gems um, of the 90s, which is his movie called Go from 1999, which is sort of a version of, it's sort of like a twist on Pulp Fiction uh, involving like teenagers almost. Um, and it is great. Like it is the only Pulp Fiction clone which actually like does justice to that original movie. Um, so check out Go as well. It's, an, it's another great um, Doug Lyman. Uh, action movie um, that will really surprise you with how strong it is. Yeah, uh, I mean, to, to maybe close out this this talking about Live, Die, Repeat, or Edge of Tomorrow, or some people even call it Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, so there are many different manifestations of his name, that there is a sequel confirmed for it, which is horrendously titled Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. I think that I actually want to go vomit into a toilet after having read that title. Um, but no, it, it, they it, it's currently in pre-production, so it's happening. It's been greenlit. Is everyone everyone returning for it? Yeah, Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt are both returning. For Doug Liman is he directing again? Yeah, Doug Liman. It's actually it's it's listed as his next movie. So 
he will not do another movie until he does this one. I mean, he did American Made last year, which I don't know if you ever saw, but I really enjoyed. I have not gotten around to seeing it yet, but I think that I would enjoy it. Yeah, it, it, it was nothing. Know, I wouldn't say it was anything spectacular, but it was a very enjoyable two hours. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm excited for the sequel then. All right, yeah, I also Edge of Tomorrow is exactly what I thought you would say for when I had this when I came up with this idea, and so I intentionally went and found another movie that came out in the same year, I believe. Uh, this movie is a superhero movie. I apologize for all those people who are rolling their eyes right now that I picked a superhero movie. But it's not Guardians of the Galaxy, um, although that is a fantastic movie. Um, I'm picking X-Men Days of Future Past, which, have you seen, Scott? I have. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen X-Men Apocalypse, but I've seen ah, that's okay. two in that series. I think that you are... I mean, like the original X-Men trilogy, the third one is the weakest one, so you yeah, picked the right yeah. two movies to have seen. And I think that X-Men Days of Future Past, in my personal opinion, some maybe some people from who are who remember the original trilogy more fondly might disagree with me, but I, I find it to be the best X-Men movie, uh, at least the core X-Men movie. Some people might argue that Deadpool's better, which I think I could entertain that argument. But X-Men Days of Future Past, it came out in 2014, in the summer, and it basically... Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar, it kind of <laughs> fixes the timeline, one might say, or it merges the timelines from the original trilogy and the the new... It You can't even call it a prequel because it's like a separate trilogy, but essentially what is the Patrick Stewart X-Men with the James McAvoy X-Men. And it's, it's a brilliant movie. I think that it's in, brilliantly constructed. I think that it, it's so cool to see some of the characters from the original X-Men trilogy who you were maybe unsure whether they had survived the end of X-Men 3 The Last Stand, and they kind of get their final say in in that timeline as they kind of reconstruct. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into the plot because I actually think it's a really interesting plot and how it unfolds, and and it is quite intense. And But I really enjoy seeing... I think, I think we do see Halle Berry as Storm again, which was always cool because yeah. I really enjoyed her from the original trilogy. And then, uh, of course, it, 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 in some ways, besides, obviously, Logan, which came out last year, it's, it's Hugh Jackman's last stint as Wolverine in the, in the wider X... Like, interacting with other X-Men uh, characters, which is, is really fascinating to see. Meanwhile, you also get, you know, along with Patrick Stewart and all, the, you know, all these original X-Men that I'm talking about, you also get Jennifer Lawrence, who's, you know, the... James McAvoy timeline, the Mystique and, and James McAvoy timeline, and of course James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, you know all these characters who I think have done an incredible job carrying or like essentially uh, accepting the torch from people like Patrick Stewart and uh, oh my goodness I'm drawing a blank is it Ian McKellen who Ian plays McKellen, yeah. yeah Ian McKellen who plays uh, Magneto in, in the original X Men trilogy and I think all these characters do such a great job and it's so cool to see them to see some of them on screen together. And I just really enjoyed it. It's a very competently uh, and coherently constructed plot. The acting is fantastic. The action sequences, almost like they always are in the X-Men series, I've found to be really on point and really enjoyable. And it, they just they just did some really cool stuff in that movie that I really appreciated. Yeah, I think that it does the thing that we talked about with Infinity War of really, there's so much going on, but it, it finds a way to balance everything really nicely. Um you know, even though we do have these two timelines, really two sets of X-Men, uh, I think that it, it you know, it, it balances everything uh, really nicely and, and, you know, we get equal enjoyment out of everything that's going on. Yeah, um, I agreed. And I think that it, it, 
it paces it, whereas I don't I mean I don't I think I talked about this when we talked about Infinity War but I didn't think that Infinity War was very well paced and that it felt like a constant mm-hmm. um you know train rushing towards some big conclusion at the end which was amazing it, it was amazingly well done um but I never really felt like I had a chance to breathe whereas in this movie I thought it was a little bit better paced uh you you get some breaks in the action uh and also without necessarily relieving the tension in the movie which I really appreciate too uh but yeah so yeah. you have you know I think it's I think the kind of groups of people include like Kitty Pride, Professor X, Storm, and Wolverine, and like the the uh, the dystopian future, if you will. And then they send Hugh Jackman. Uh, sorry, yeah, they send Hugh Jackman as Wolverine back in time, where he interacts with you know Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, and you know James McAvoy as Professor X, Michael Fassbender as Magneto. Um, Really cool stuff, really well done, and yeah, I, I don't know, I just, yeah. I really appreciate this movie a lot. Yeah, I think I've actually only seen it one time, like right when it came out, so mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to check it out again. Yeah, and if for no other reason is because the the X-Men, so there's Quicksilver in the MCU who, I have spoiler alert, like dies in Age of Ultron, uh, right. but there's also Evan Peters who plays Peter Maximoff, Quicksilver, in the X-Men universe here, and his scenes... In both in Days of Future Past and in also in then in Apocalypse as well are some of the best scenes in the X Men franchise. Like they're just so cool to watch, and they do it so much more brilliantly. Uh, I believe the director for Days of Future Past is Brian Singer. Like Brian Singer just has a really cool vision for what Quicks for filming Quicksilver on screen, whereas I don't feel like uh, MCU did a very good job with his, with a few scenes that Quicksilver had in their franchise. Uh-huh. I don't know yeah. if you remember. I don't know if you particularly remember the scene with Quicksilver from Days of Future Past or not, but it's really cool. Not off the top of my head, but yeah, it also turns out he's Magneto's son, which is a a big plot point. I think that gets kind of glossed over. Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not that important part of the plot, uh, but nevertheless, it's true. All right, cool. So I think now it's I'm gonna I'm gonna turn things over to you to to walk us through the movie trivia showdown. We had a big. Title week a few weeks back. Last week, although still interesting, was a little bit less impactful. Uh, but why don't we start with some title matches? Oh, man, yeah. I mean, we, we have gone on in the past three, four weeks, like one of the greatest runs in Schmodown history with just like amazing match after amazing match. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really all culminated with title week. Um you know, starting with the team match. And, you know, last time we talked about this team match and, you know, what we expected and the fact that, you know, on paper, you would really think that above the line with its lineup of Drew McQueenie and Sam Levine um, would be able to handle the Patriots, um, JTE and Jeff Snyder. But, you know, the Patriots went into the match at 9-0. and They had beaten some other teams who, on paper, um, you would have not expected them to beat, including beating above the line once before. Um, and they just seem to have that sort of magic and luck, uh, perhaps in the title matches that, you know, made you wonder if they were ever going to drop a match. Um, and so, you know, the, you, you, you could, had to account for that too, going into this match um, against ab- above the line. And early on in this match, it really felt like, Patriots' destiny was was going to come through again. Um, 
in round two in particular, the uh, team above the line had some very difficult questions. Um, Sam, you could see, was getting very frustrated uh, with the difficulty of his question, with the difficulty of his team's questions. Um, at one point, um, there was a, a sort of a controversial moment where Sam answered a question very quickly, um, and he, he he gave an answer, got like almost pretty much all the way through the answer. Um, and Christian, but then realized that the question was asking for something else and corrected himself very quickly. Asking for um, the actor instead of the movie title. Right. Um, and Christian allowed that, basically saying that, saying, oh, I didn't ask for whether it was his final answer yet, um, which is kind of BS. Um, but ultimately, it didn't actually end up deciding and end up mattering in the match because um, there was a greater point differential than, you know, uh, in, in the ultimate result, then that you know, correcting that mistake would have made. Um, and we we came down to the final question, and it was the Patriots. Uh, you know, last time it was the ball was in above the lines court, and they had to answer the Denzel Washington question about remember the Titans, and they couldn't do it. Uh, which, by the way, I loved Jeff Jeff Snyder coming out in a white shirt that just has said, remember the Titans question mark on it um, before this match. <laughs> I thought that was a nice bit of trolling. Um, but The joke, of course, would have been on them if there was a remember the Titans question towards the end of the match. That, that, now, if that had happened, I perhaps would start believing Brian Davids about the showdown being rigged because <laughs> that almost seems too good to be true. Uh, almost like Captain Nita coming up again for Sam Whitworth. But, um, so, but this time around, the ball was in Patriots court um, and they had to answer this final question and you know even though above the line like went on ha- had gone on had made a great comeback in this match to take the lead um, they answered a great question at five points about the movies that Tom Cruise had played a lawyer in um, a few good men in the firm uh, you know Sam did his thing in the speed round uh, playing extremely well and getting above the line a lot of points there even though things things were trending in above the lines um, direction, you know, I still fully expected that the Patriots were somehow going to pull this last question out, uh, and that question ended up being who played uh, Charlize Theron's father, because uh, the category was Charlize Theron, who played her father in The Italian Job, um, and after asking for a repeat uh, or a couple repeats, maybe uh, the Patriots uh, were unable to come up with Donald Sutherland and. Instead, uh, had a nice little throwback to their very first title win when they beat Team Schmoes with the answer of Robert Duvall. And, uh, you know, Jeff Snyder looked to the crowd and said, I think this is the end, boys, and then said Robert Duvall is the answer. Um, and we have a new team champion for the first time in over a year. Um, what, you know, what, was, what did you think about this match, Scott? Oh, I mean, it's as compelling as any match we've seen. In fact, I know that we, when we were talking about title week. I don't know if we talked about it on air or not, but we were talking about how we were even maybe more interested in the Tuesday match than the Friday match. As interesting as this, as, as compelling as a title matchup of, of Clark Wolf against Sam Levine is for the implications of the league that Clark Wolf had beaten Sam Levine before and Clark would be the first female champion, et cetera, et cetera. And how, obviously how long of a streak that Sam Levine has been on in the singles league as well. But the doubles match of exactly like you described, Drew McWeeny and Sam Levine, who on paper you think like should be able to beat Jeff Schneider, and uh, JTE. But nevertheless, like you said, they have the magic dust in the teams like the Patriots do. And 
it was just such a compelling match. It was back and forth while still being close the entire time. It's everything you wanted out of a title match. And and even you know even when they got to the speed round, you know yes, Sam got three out of the five questions. Drew got another one, and then I think Jeff Schneider got one of them. Uh, even then, like keeping it close, keeping it competitive, and, and anyone could have won it in the final round. And the fact that it came down to you know one above the line having to hit their five point question, and then. You know, could the Patriots replicate that? Uh, it was as compelling as the Schmodown matches you're going to get. And we've gotten a lot of compelling matches this year. Yeah, and even perhaps more compelling, uh, or you know, it's yet to be determined, but we have an uh, incredible match coming up between the two of them again. Um, you know, the Patriots, having been champions for so long, got an automatic rematch. Um, however, Thad Williams, the commissioner, gave Sam Levine and Drew McQueenie um, the ability to set the terms for this rematch at Collider Collision, um, which will be in July, I believe, um, or maybe at the end of June. But um, And Sam decided that he was going to uh, make this an Ironman match. Um, this will be the second Ironman match in the Schmodown. Of course, the first one was the incredible Star Wars title match between Sam Witwer and Ken Knapsack, which came down to literally the final question. Um but, you know, basically what we're going to get is 30 minutes of just question after question uh, between the Patriots and above the line. And whoever answers the most questions um, correctly will be the winner and will be the team champion. And, you know, if the Patriots lose, then they are actually going to have to work their way back up um, by winning some other matches. Um, and if above the line win that I think we'll be able to definitely say that, you know, this win was not a fluke for sure. Not that I, I don't really think anyone thinks it was a fluke given that it's Sam Levine and Drew McQueenie. Um, but you know, it might shut the lion's den up a little bit. Um, yeah. And to remind our maybe more novice listeners about what an Iron Man match is, since there only has been one. In fact, I myself am a little shaky on the rules, but it's, it's not, it, it is, there's still a mix of formats within the 30 minute within 30 minutes, right, there's one part that is your more traditional, like round one, right on the whiteboard, show your answers, and then there's a speed round version at the end, right? Uh, Yeah, once you get down into, I believe it's the last two minutes, um, they bring the buzzers out, and uh, you have, like, timeout, a timeout you can call. Yep. Um, But, yeah, it gets down to the buzzers, um, and that's actually in the Star Wars match where Ken was able to pick up a lot of ground because he was trailing by a lot going into that. Um, but then managed to tie it up going to that final question. But Sam was, of course, able to pull that out. Um, but, you know, I, I honestly, I think I would not be surprised if above this line won this match pretty handily because I think that when you take, you know, some of the kinks of the Shmoda, of the regular Schmodown format out of the equation, um, this is basically just a raw, test of raw movie knowledge. Um, and I think that Sam and Drew definitely have the upper hand in that area. But, you know, maybe in some of these, you know, for, format, like maybe, maybe when we get into the speed round, we will see that, you know, the Patriots still do have more experience with the speed round. Um, so maybe, you know, they might have an upper hand, but they didn't really um, in this previous match. So, um, yeah, I, I think this might be above the lines to lose. But regardless, um, an incredible match and an incredible uh, you know, not just in terms of the quality of the match, but in terms of what it means for the showdown going forward, the Patriots finally losing a match. Um, yep. And then fr- 
Friday, we, you know, we had obviously the singles match, which had a lot to live up to after that team match. Um, Sam Levine trying to become the first person to ever hold two. Well, actually, he after winning the team, um, felt he was the first person to hold two two um, belts at the same time. Um, but you know, it it wouldn't have lasted very long uh, if he were to lose the singles match. So that was on the line, as you pointed out, Clark Wolf. Um, you know, been in this league for a couple of years, 2016 Rookie of the Year, would be the first female champion if she was able to pull it out. Um, and, you know, going into this match, I thought it was going to be pretty uh, a pretty even match, even though Sam, you know, had been on a great run. But Clark, you know, Clark had been on a great run as well. And as you, you pointed out, she had beaten Sam before. Um, and this match, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of uh, play, did not quite match the team um match because uh, <laughs> it was, was grueling it was a grueling match of low it was score extremely difficult questions and i think this might be the first match ever um certainly the first time in the title match where not a single question in round three has been answered correctly oh, round five um, i believe round five and yeah the final round yep. um has been answered correctly um which is you know, pretty incredible when you think about the, the you know, how strong the two players on display were. Um, and, but, I mean, you know, I have to say, watching at home, I actually, I mean, I didn't know any of these questions either, except um, Sam Levine's five-point classics question um, about Joseph Cotton playing Orson Welles, playing the, the other reporter in Citizen Kane. Um, I was a little disappointed in Sam for not answering that one right, considering it is one of the most famous movies of all time. Um, I think Sam was probably most disappointed in not knowing that one too, of of the questions yeah. he had, because he had one in animated and one in like family films, or right, something like that. So yeah, he didn't got, they, he didn't have his wheelhouse. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it, it, in some ways, it was it was just as compelling of a match that you we got in the in the team title, but for completely different reasons. Uh, and so I, I appreciate the variety while still, you know, dialing the intensity up to 11. It wasn't a blowout by any stretch of the imagination. Well, yeah. So, you know, what ended up happening was the match went to sudden death. Mm-hmm. Um, Three rounds deep, I believe. I think it was four, maybe. Oh, but, four. Okay. Um, in the fourth round of sudden death, after all of this, it came down to a question about the crudes. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Clark was not able to come up with the answer. She, uh, had used all of her repeats, um, and it, it actually it seemed like she realized that she had written the wrong answer as time was running out. But because she had used all of her repeats, I don't um, believe you're allowed to use repeats in sudden death. I could be wrong, but I think they go away. I think you can use one, but okay. I may be wrong. About no, that. I, um, I don't think it, it. It happens so rarely anyway, and most time people have yeah. used all their JTU well, for that point. Yeah, and it actually made me think. Yeah, it, because of what you just said, it made me think maybe they should give an additional JTE rule when they get to sudden death because, you know, most people use all of theirs in the regular game not expecting that it's going to go to sudden death. So it might, you know, make sense to give a team an extra in a way that you would give a football team an extra timeout in overtime. Um, but I, one thing that I think has gone sort of under the radar about this match is that um, there was a challenge um, so early on the match, Sam Levine wanted to challenge the asking of a question um, because he thought that Mark Ellis had asked the question wrong, but he chose not to challenge. And later on, um, he used his challenge when Clark had an answer that was ruled correct. And uh, after the challenge, 
John Rocha was called in, and they determined that Clark's answer was not correct, and so those points were taken away from her. However, what I think has gone under the radar is the fact that if Sam had used his challenge at the beginning, he would not have won that challenge. No, um, he would he would not have at all because he just didn't hear right. it well. And then Clark would have won the match. Um, so it goes to show you how important the challenge is and how important it is that you use the challenge smartly. Um, because in this case, it possibly allowed Sam Levine to, to hold on to the title belt. Absolutely. And I actually had had forgotten that. I'd for, I hadn't put the two and two together there. But that's absolutely right because, yeah. you know, so many times we feel like, oh, like maybe that person should have used a challenge there because, you know, what's it good for anyway? He's, just, he's not going to use it later. Um, and that's a perfect example of how, well, sometimes you do use it later. And also that just would have been such a dumb thing to challenge. Yeah, I know because I mean I don't. I personally I didn't think that Mark had asked the question wrong. So well, I also I also rewound it to re-listen to it, and he he asked the question correctly. I just yeah. think Sam either didn't hear it because of the audience, um, or just couldn't hear clearly. Or, or to be fair, it is like it. There was something about the question where it made it feel like if you weren't listening closely, if you like you might be able to mishear it and say yeah. and say actress. I I can't remember exactly what the nuance of the question was, but I was like, oh, I can see how he misheard that. But also, Mark read it correctly yeah yeah so amazing singles titles match as well um you know clark took the l but she will be back with the shire wolves um who are going for that team title um and actually i'm not sure if this has been said before today but i was listening to the um, patreon state of the union that christian put out earlier today yep. and he said that if the shire wolves win the live match against team action then they will get a number one contender match. Yeah, well, the winner of that match will then, of course, get a title shot against, uh, I guess, whoever wins the Iron Man match between Above the Line and the Patriots. Um, I remember so, I remember yeah. we were talking off-air about that a couple days ago, and I was like, yeah, do you think it's too early for them to get a number one contender if they win the, if they win that live match? Where it's yeah. like, if... Right, because correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the stakes for that match now, at, now that Team Action has won their stipulation match is that they get a title shot if they win that's correct yeah or uh, if if the shire wolves win they get a number one contender spot mm-hmm. or number one contender match i should say right and they will get that match against the world's finest which is christian revealed on the podcast i mean i don't think it's too early personally like thinking back the patriots i believe were three and oh when they had their first title shot against um the team schmoes and so i think that if um or maybe it's against top 10, I can't remember. But um, I think that, yeah, so, I mean, you know, the Shire Wolves, if they were to beat the world's finest, then they would be 3-0, and and the world's finest would also be 3-0 and if they were to win this match. So I think it's it's time for those one of those two teams to get a title shot, if, of course, the Shire Wolves are able to beat Team Action. I don't think that's a given at all. Um, you know, Team Action had a close match against DC Movie News, which also um, featured... Yeah, the, a moment that people have been wanting for a while now, which is Mike Kalinowski going full heel. Um, and uh, but but I mean, I think Team Action is always a team to be reckoned with. And uh, Christian also pointed this out on the State of the Union. But uh, the stats have shown that when Andrew Guy answers five or six points in the first round, um, Team Action is pretty hard to beat because Ben Bateman um, is so strong. So, I mean, I think it's going to be a great match. There's obviously going to be fireworks between the two groups of personalities. Um, so we have that to look forward to. We, we also have the, the Intergeekdom Gauntlet to get to look forward to, which is getting going this week. 
actually got going today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have five matches coming up, and the winner of all five of those matches, or if each of those matches is going to play in a fatal five-way at the Collider <laughs> Collision, uh, with the winner getting a title shot against Jason Inman. So I want to go through these matches really quickly and just see who you think is going to win each one. Um, sure. So first of all, we have Adam Palavic against Hector Navarro. Yeah, I really, I mean, I've only watched Hector Navarro in his loss, to in his title defense against Jason Inman, which he lost. And Jason Inman became the Intergeekdom champion. Uh, and I, I remember watching Lavic in that first, I believe it was also a five-way, where, um, oh my goodness, um, yeah, Donica. Yeah, Mark, yeah. Don- he went kind of toe-to-toe with Mark Donica, and I thought that Lavic was a very good competitor in that. And so I think this could be a really close match. I mean, I just give the edge to someone who's competed more in Hector Navarro, and he, he's been the champion. He's been under those lights more than Lavic has been. But I wouldn't be surprised if Adam Lavic could pull it out either. Yeah, I won't say anything about this match because I've already watched it. It actually came out today. Um, but Friday we have Emma Fife against Jay Washington. What's your take on this one? Yeah, so I've actually – I don't think I've seen either of these two compete in Inner Geekdom before. Um, I, part of me just feels like, you know, there's lots of good things about the Shire Wolves going on, and I, I think that their bubble is, is bound to be burst. And, you know, of course – that's to say, like, Clark Wolf lost her title shot. Rachel Cushing lost her title shot. But uh, they still had respectable matches in the in the play. And, I, and I'm worried that maybe Emma Fife might get embarrassed by Jay Washington, uh, although I have no particular reason to back that up. I haven't seen either of them compete in Intergeekdom. Of course, Emma Fife beat Jay Washington in the manager bowl at the Schmodown Spectacular last year. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving the edge to Jay Washington, but I, I think uh, I, I could be proven quite wrong. Yeah, I think we're seeing that Emma's performance at the manager bowl might have been a slightly a flash in the pan. Um, Spoilers. Her, her match, her singles match against Janine the Machine, where she was pretty handily defeated. Um, Which non-Patreon members have not seen yet, so... That's true. Um, spoiler, spoiler. Um, yeah, a little late, but that's okay. The inner geekdom is definitely more her forte. Um, Harry however, Potter. She she's a, a woman after my own heart. You know her Harry Potter specialty rivals my yeah. own Harry Potter specialty. So yeah, but she's also never won an intergeekdom match. Um, yeah, I'd love to and, go on a one on one with a Harry Potter Iron Man match with Emma Five. That's what I want. Yes, that would be great. Um, and get Rachel Cushing in there too. So I believe she knows a lot about. Okay, Harry Potter. Th- a three way um, a three way Harry Potter Iron Man match between Rachel yeah. Cushing, uh, Emma Five, and myself. Yeah, but um. I, th- I also am going to give the edge to Jay in this one, not because I think he's like a great player, even in Intergeekdom, but he has one. I mean, he did beat Robert Meyer Burnett, who was once the Intergeekdom champion. And if you go, I mean, they all, people always point that out that, oh, he beat Burnett. And if you go back and watch that match, it really wasn't that great of a quality of a match from either player. Um, but he has that under his belt. Uh, I feel like he's been preparing a lot, like the Viper Squad are doing really well right now. Um, so I'm going to give the edge to Jay in this one. Um, speaking of the Viper Squad, we have the last match which was announced, and that is the new member of the Viper Squad, Marquia, and she has uh, very boldly challenged Rachel Cushing. So, you know, given that we, we don't have much to go off of with Marquia, who do you think is going to win this match? i got to give it to Rachel Cushing here. I mean, she's proven chops in, in inner geekdom, and I think that she can definitely do it. Yeah, I think Rachel is out for blood, um, and I think that she'll probably win this match pretty pretty heavily. Um, okay, so next we have Mike Kalinowski against Jared Habon. Two 
very good looking gentleman. Um, Talking about someone who's out for blood, there's no way that Mike Kalinowski doesn't come out swinging for the fences in this match. And I will be, I will honestly, I think Kalinowski is like done in the schmodown if he doesn't win this match. I think so too. Like, yeah, he's been on a really bad run recently, but I don't think Haybon should be taken lightly. Oh, I don't think so either. A number one contender match um, against Donica, and he's surprised me before. So I think this could be a close match. And he, he has he has one he has one Schmodown win, but four KOs. So I don't think he can <laughs> take him lightly. Yeah, but I do give the edge to Kalinowski because number one, he is so determined, and number two, we saw what he could do with James Bond. Oh, in I was the I was DC shook. Match. I was shook by his James Bond round. Yeah. Um, so that yeah, I think that. Um, I, I give the edge to Mike. And then finally, we have Mark Donica, who, of course, lost that title shot against Jason Edmund. And he is going up against the former Intergatum champion, Robert Meyer Burnett. Who do you think takes this one? You know, Current Lions in against former Lions. That's exactly what I was about to say. I think I think that I, I give I give the edge to, to Mark Donica here. I think that as skeptical uh, as I am of him, I think that uh, he would be... He'd be a disappointing little cubby in the Lions Den if he can't if he can't pull out a win against a former Lions Den member. Yeah, um, I hate to say it. Sorry, Chris Clark, if you happen to be listening, but I think Burnett is getting a little washed up. And uh, between you know, after following up his title um, loss by losing to Jay Washington, and then like putting up nothing in the uh, free for all, I think. Um, Burnett may be forced into retirement unless, of course, he gets that Star Trek uh, match that he's been um, clamoring for against Jason Inman and Scott Mance, which would actually be really entertaining, I think. But um, So I, I also give the edge to Donica. Um, so, you know, finally, with, with, that, with all those predictions being said, who do you think will, will ultimately get the title shot? I mean, ultimately getting the title shot? You know, I think Rachel Cushing. I honestly think Rachel Cushing could do it. Um... It's it's tough to count out some of these some of these contenders because I, I think that it I mean I think they've have they played before in Intergeekdom, but have Kalinowski and Cushing played before in Intergeekdom? They have. Yeah, I, I wouldn't um, be surprised. Five way matches, I believe. Yeah, I mean I expect them to be going head to head again in the fatal five way for the uh for the title shot. And I I I, I think that Rachel Cushing can do it. I think that, you know, she's gonna really want she's gonna be out for, I mean, we've said out for blood a lot in this kind of segment already, and I think that she's after her disappointing kind of round four collapse against Sam Levine. Uh, I think that she's going to focus a lot of energy into intergeekdom here to kind of build her confidence back up because it is a strong suit of hers. Uh, as strong as she is in the in the normal Schmodown Singles League, I think intergeekdom is a strength for her too. So I think that... I think Al- oh, go ahead. I think Out for Blood is also the name of a uh, questionable Steven Seagal movie. Well, aren't most Steven Seagal movies questionable? I mean, I don't know. Yes, except for Under Siege. Under Siege is a really good movie. There we go. Here's your Steven Seagal plug for the week right there. If we ever have a discussion topic of what is your favorite Steven Seagal movie, we're going to have to fight over who gets to say Under Siege. I think that I would first require me to go watch more Steven Seagal movies. But, yeah. And, and I personally just don't have a desire to do that, so we're probably not going to yeah, have that. I want you to suffer through. Yeah, fair enough. But no, I think I think I'm gonna I put my money on Rachel Cushing. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Mike Kalinowski. Both those two, particularly Kalinowski, has you know ev- every reason to want that title shot to to prove themselves again. And I think that they're gonna want it more than some of these other contenders. Yeah, I think that Rachel. It seems like in the interviews she is like 
really made um, going for this inner geekdom title her mission this season so far. Um, and, you know, we've seen that when Rachel gets on a mission, like, she pretty much accomplishes that. Like, you know, she obviously studied a lot going into that. Uh, well, going into the Ultimate Showdown last year and going into ma- the season premiere match, the three-way match with Kalinowski and JTE, and she dominated in that match um, and did very well in the Ultimate Showdown as well. And, you know, if you think about the fact that she really hasn't played a lot of matches uh, recently since that Shirewolves match was her last match, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's had some time to be boning up on this Intergeekdom stuff. And so I, I, uh, I definitely think that Cushing is the one to be here. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have spent a lot of time, a lot of good time talking about this. A lot of things have been happening. And I think that we are way over time on this episode. So we're going to punt our new section to next time. We'll kind of just aggregate and make a super long new section. Uh, but I think that should just about do it for episode 11 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, I just want to say, um, follow me on Letterboxd. I'm on there now. Um, it's a, If you don't know what it is, it's a really cool... Uh, sort of social media type site but it's totally based around movies and you go on you rate movies and you keep a log of what you've been seeing mm-hmm. um, and you can make lists and stuff so um, best date movies do what I said the best date movies hit me with them yeah we found we found a list uh, on there of the best date movies that someone had made and it included such classics as uh, Sallow um, <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust um uh, <laughs> What else do we have on there? The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> Saw um, was definitely on there. Yeah, some you know, so truly romantic films. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, I'm sure like The Exorcist is on there too. Um, yeah, um, yeah. The, I I joked that the only thing was missing was like the Catherine Bigelow collection of Zero Dark Thirty and Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would not be great either. But um, but uh, in addition to that list, you can also find a list which I made this week of my. 50 favorite movies of all time so follow me and go check that out absolutely no i i've been meaning to jump on there myself i haven't had the chance to yet and you know i've had a little short little mini vacation here with memorial day weekend and i probably missed out on my opportunity to really sink my teeth into it but maybe i'll maybe i'll get around to it this weekend or something yeah yeah um and you, that's at scarby Den. i don't know if i said that but that's where you can follow me on that absolutely and i believe that's also where people can find you on twitter yes it is and you're welcome for that transition sweet that's the best segue i've ever done on this podcast let's go uh awesome i can i can be found at ash at s shelton 2013 over on twitter and you know i'll probably stick with that as my handle too whenever i get on the letterbox unless it's taken already in which case i will find that person and kill them so i can take their handle more importantly however (laughs) yeah well i take my handles very seriously so more importantly uh we also want to remind you about uh the some like it's got patreon page and we'd love it if you checked it out Especially so if you decide to support us over there to help us cover the cost of making this show. If you, however, choose not to support us on Patreon, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I have said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. This was a particularly long episode. We had a lot to say about Solo and Deadpool 2. We hope that you enjoyed that. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. Uh, you know, add us on Twitter. Um, you know, you can hit us up on Facebook. You can comment and on the SoundCloud link 
to the podcast as well. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about what you thought of these movies, what you thought about our discussion of these movies. Uh, anything would be great there. Uh, hopefully, again, we're still kind of waiting in the wings on the update on The Seagull. We're going to see if that comes out. It's not looking like it's going to make it for our next episode. It still hasn't come out in a wide release. Uh, we'll keep tracking that and see if we can get that on the podcast. Right now, for our next episode, we know we will be talking about Adrift, a movie with Shailene Woodley. Uh, and I uh, jump in here. Who's the other actor in this one? I'm I'm forgetting. I believe it's Sam Claflin. Yeah, I think that's right. Sam Claflin, Shailene Woodley. Uh, that movie will definitely be on our menu for the next episode. We're still trying to figure out if we're going to have a second movie, depending on releases. But count on a drift. Uh, everything else is TBD. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody.